Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome or welcome back to another Hot Off the Griddle edition of Roll On. But before we dive in... Hey, everybody. Like me, Inside Tracker wants to help you start the new year right. So they're thrilled to help support the Living Proof Challenge, the no-cost, science-based habit-building program designed by my well-being wizard brother, Simon Hill, to specifically up-level the most important biomarkers that drive health span, that drive disease prevention, physical fitness, and mental well-being, courtesy of a doable, evidence-based 12-week program elaborated upon in length in my conversation with Simon that dropped January 1. That's RRP 804. If you listen to that episode, then you know the program entails comprehensive blood testing at both the commencement and conclusion of the challenge. And nobody handles blood testing better than Inside Tracker, who are graciously encouraging everyone to join the no cost challenge by offering a 25% off discount on Inside Tracker tests. To unlock the discount and learn more about this challenge, visit theproof.com slash livingproof. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm going to tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. What's up, people? Thank you for permitting us to once again infect you with a potent new strain of roll-on. <laughs> Wherein myself and my sidecar hype beast, the always congenial and ponderous Sir Adam Skolnick, chew on matters of the day with droll repartee in a manner that is hopefully 
somewhat instructive and possibly at times even entertaining. You're entertaining. You're I getting fan mail now. I just I try to develop a rapport with whoever I'm talking you do. to. You're in communion with the audience. <laughs> Right? I try to build rapport. <laughs> well, as always, you guys know, we talk about matters of the day. We do a little bit of show and tell. We answer listener questions on the back end of the program. If you would like your question considered, leave us a voicemail at 424-235-4626. Before we dive in, my kids who are my YouTube mentors tell me that I must demand you indulge us with a powerful smash to that subscribe button on YouTube. <laughs> okay, Boomer. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, click that YouTube notification bell, hit the thumbs up, like button, leave your thoughts in the comments section below. And uh, that's it. Let's get into it, Adam. How you doing? Happy Passover. Thank you, sir. Happy half Passover to you. Half Passover? Aren't you half, don't you have some? No, Houdin? I'm an honorary. Oh, you're honorary. not half. Hon yeah. Honorary Passover. Honorary. Honor um, you know, what's Jewish funny about person. Passover is that, uh, you know, back in the day, well, at, today actually. Back in the day, like way back in the day? Well, like yesterday. The day. You could actually walk <laughs> from Egypt to Jerusalem in uh -huh. under a week, or the Iron Cowboy could probably do it in five days. Right. Um, and, but back in the day, when it was just a caravan of opinionated Jews with no ways, wrong turn, left turn, right turn, <laughs> 40 years later, they wind up in Jerusalem. about it, which way to go. <laughs> it took a long time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Is it really, you could do it in seven days? Now you can do it. it. Seems and like it would be further, but I guess not. You must have to go around like through Jordan or something. Mm. But uh, Stephen Pressfield's new book, A Man at Arms, there's a, a similar journey that takes place in that mm. novel. And oh yeah. I, I seem to recall it takes these people a little bit longer than seven days. Yeah, they were, they were, they were loafing. Well, you know. No ways. What are you going to do? <laughs> exactly. No they ways. iPhone deficient. And like the monochrome of the desert. I mean, how do you know where you're going? Yeah. Polynesians, they were not. I right. mean, you could say a lot of good things about Jews. They were not, they were not guiding themselves by the stars. <laughs> not, okay. Um, how are you doing otherwise? Good, man. Good. I, I was back out in the cold, murky Pacific Ocean. What's the temp these days? It was 53, 54. Mm. It's pretty cold. And it was yeah. like, it was like the it was usually the water the clarity is is decent enough. I mean, often it can it can get murky, but often it's also really blue. This time it was like we we had we're swimming through the remains of a million jellyfish, <laughs> right. like brown and green and stringy, and uh, and cold. But you know that's what is so fun about that swim around that reef and is that it's still always beautiful. It's, like, mm. it's always a good idea. Did it give you uh, a moment to ponder the themes of Seaspiracy, which we're gonna talk about <laughs> a little bit later? No, because I hadn't watched it yet. Oh, you hadn't, okay. I, I crammed for my uh -huh. my studies last night. <sighs> last minute, getting um, it in, I was a last right? minute geek. But um, but I, I was thinking about Alexei Molchanov and how mm. cold it must it was for him and how cold right. I was. Do we wanna talk about that right now? Isn't that a win of the week? It is, but you can hat tip it. I'll hat tip it to another world record for free dive champion extraordinaire, Alexei Molchanov. He dove 80 meters in a lake in Siberia. Underneath the ice. Underneath the what ice. What was the water temp there? It was uh, one to two degrees Celsius. So, you know, 35. That's nuts. And I was in, and he was in a seven mil, mm -hmm. but he actually did a test dive the day before in a five mil. And I was in, 
you know, triathlon wetsuit, which has some close to five millimeter panels and others, you know, you know how they are, mm -hmm. they're mixed panels. And I was in 53, 54 degree water and I was, and I wasn't yeah. diving 80 meters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you wrote a great piece for the New York Times Thank you. once again, Thank being you. the free diving correspondent at large for the Times. The, yes. But what's cool about, in addition to just being, you know, a very well written piece, and I guess we'll, we're kind of talking about it. Well, we can shelve it and talk about it later, but, um, is the 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 presentation like the multimedia mm. aspects of storytelling that the Times seems to really yeah. be embracing because it's on a it's on another level, and they like it and it helps actually get more eyeballs to it. It ends up it happened with um, Maya's record wave as mm -hmm. well. Um, it sets it sets the when you can get video, it's setting it apart. So right. and 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 that is definitely a driver to the stories when right. I'm selling them. So. On a fitness level, are you resting on your four by four by 48 laurels or have you been able to no. perpetuate the momentum? Well, it's funny because I knew I was doing four by four by 48. I I kind of joined one of these uh, Garmin challenges for like a badge. Uh -huh. And so through March 31st, I'm supposed to run 505 kilometers from January 1st to March 31st for the first quarter. And I'm close to that marker. Yeah, good. Um, so I've got to knock that off by Wednesday. And I've been getting some zone two motivation. A couple of your listeners, one more recently reached out and said that when he started zone twoing three years ago, he was running 12 minute mile zone twos. Right. And now he's doing extended periods in the low sevens. Wow. And it was just that's like- huge, That's huge progress. It's really, yeah. you know, everybody who has reached out to me, I really appreciate it. And that kind of stuff is very motivating. And I have been continuing to do my zone two stuff and I'm not resting. I, I, I've been trying. It's hard because I, I want to keep running five, six days a week, but I'd like to get in the ocean too. And I just have a limited amount of time. So it's a matter of choosing. Mm -hmm. But um, I think if you intersperse, like, I don't know that you need to run six days a week. Like, okay. I, I don't run that much. I mean, I think if you intersperse it with some swims, it'll actually benefit your running. Okay. Um, but perpetuating that, like, dedication to zone two, it's, it's playing a long game, you know. It, most people, I get so much feedback from people saying, "I tried the zone two thing, but I just got bored, or I gave up, or I wasn't seeing progress, or it wasn't working." And I think people are just impatient. Like it works, but you have to really dedicate yourself to it, and it does require a different kind of discipline because you have to let go of everything you think you know about what it means to get fit yeah. and just understand that you're going to be on a journey for a long time, and you're not going to see results for quite an extended period of time. But then when it starts to kick in, it really makes a huge difference as in the case of that example you just cited. I feel like I've shaved uh, in six months, a minute off my mile time, I mean, that's average huge. mile time in right. zone two. So it's not about getting faster, it's becoming more efficient so that the strain on your body yeah. is reduced. And what you know, you used to be able to do at a 10 minute pace or whatever, if you're doing it at a nine minute pace with the same amount of output, just continuing that trend. Imagine running seven minute miles and having it feel like it feels like when you're running 10 minute miles. That, that's my dream. So like that's, and that's why I feel like I'm, I'm, I do, I'm starting to see some small movement. And I also, 
like mostly I'm feeling it in my on my feet, which because I used to be such a pounder, mm -hmm. and I'd be hammering. I, you could hear me coming from like a hundred right. miles away, yeah, shaking, I mean? the, shaking the buildings. Yeah, and now I'm really just like I'm very quiet now mm -hmm. compared to what I used to be. Right, and um, not just the breath, but the, my footsteps. Cool. And so I do feel like that's helping, but at the same time, my form is not great. You know, I, I need. There's a lot of improvement that can that can happen. Mm. Um, and then Nicholas just messaged me this morning there's some swim run challenge happening in june where he's trying to get like teams around the world to do mac you know to pile up the swim run miles and to have some sort of virtual competition so oh wow i'll look at that and i'll bring it to you that's cool see. yeah that's cool yeah um i had my coach chris hout and caroline burkle in here the other day and chris is training for a trans uh tahoe assault where really? he's gonna go end to end I can't remember how many miles it is, like 28 or something like that. Um, and he's trying to recruit Caroline and I to swim segments and crew him. And I just, I haven't been swimming at all. Like their pools are so difficult to get into. Right. And, you know, I'm not thrilled about getting into 53 degree water. <laughs> you, I mean, it's fine for, you know, a plunge, but like for training, that's right. a different thing. Right, so right, right. I don't know. I got a text this morning putting some pressure oh, you on. You got to do it, man. Let's we'll get up see, there. We'll see what happens. Um, how are you? How's what's going on in I'm your all right. space? I, I, you know, I'm a little uh, foggy and groggy today. Um, so if I lapse into, you know, kind of a zoned out space, it's on you to carry this, this podcast. I just didn't sleep well last night. We're recording this on Monday. What's the date today? The 29th. Yes. Um, the full moon has been in full effect the last yeah. couple of days. Actually, it's been really dramatic in LA with it yeah. resting low on the horizon. It yeah. has looked huge. And I don't know what it is. I think we talked about this before, right? Like I just don't sleep great on the full moon. So I'm well, feeling you're a little outside. bit off today. Um, Julie's out of town with one of our, our daughters. So I'm on kid duty, home duty. It's been a busy past week, um, getting in some interesting training in the gym. It's weird, like I, I've really committed to this um, this this strength uh, program that I'm on, and you know I feel like my body's changing. Like I touch a weight and I like bulk up immediately, right. so I'm, I feel like bulky and like it feels good to be strong. Like I haven't felt this way in a long time, but my body is changing and in a way that I'm not used to. Like I'm used to being very lean and agile, and now I feel like this brick walking around. Really? Yeah, I'm going from you know hippie trail guy right. with a long beard to like basically, you know, playing volleyball in Top Gun. <laughs> That's kind of like, you know, like <laughs> the trajectory that I'm on. I wanna get back. Now it's like summer out. Like I, I just wanna be more outdoors. Like, <laughs> like I'm not a gym rat, but I really do wanna, uh, you know, take this thing to another level and, and, wow. and get strong and see where that leads How's me. the back? So it's, it's good. I've been doing the cold plunging mm -hmm. and that's been great. I've got the temp down to like 46 now. I'm taking it down like two degrees every couple of days. And how long I are you I wanna work for? down towards to 39, but I do three rounds of four minutes um, alternating. There's a hot, there's a, we have also have an outdoor bathtub. So I put hot water on that and I go back and forth. So I do four minutes in the tub, three rounds. Wow. And it's been good and I'm adjusting to it. And I'm not like, when I first started, at like 54 degrees, I'd be like shivering, you know? And now I just get in and I'm like, this feels awesome. Like really? you do acclimate to it. Not that it gets easier, it's still kind of a shock, but 
Um, I look forward to it now. And it really is um, quite refreshing, especially if you do it like in the late afternoon when your energy is starting to lull. Yeah. It's like taking a two hour nap and it's really helping my back a lot, which has been great. So you get to 39, you say. I'm enjoying that. We're hard at work on uh, Voicing Change Volume Two. Mm. Uh, which is cool. I keep trying to carve out time to work on that book, but this podcast takes up a lot of time, brother. <laughs> this particular I one? tell you, <laughs> but I have made time to get out on on some gravel with uh, with my e bike, which has been really fun. It's just opened up like all these trails that I've never that are kind of too far away for me to run, but now I'm exploring them on two wheels, and that's been super fun. Like I can get from my house all the way over to the west side and tour all around and. Um, it's just like a whole different part of LA has suddenly opened up to me and the weather's gotten nice, it was super warm. I rode both Saturday and Sunday and and uh, that was great. And then last night, just working on getting the Alex Honnold podcast up, which just went live, which is super fun. Mm. Early feedback on that is great. Got some good stuff coming up. Matthew Walker is doing the show on Saturday. Um, people know him as one of, if not the, preeminent authorities on sleep. He mm. wrote this amazing book, Why We Sleep. Um, so I'm really looking forward to um, podcasting with him. I read his book when it came out and now I'm listening to it on audiobook, which has been great. And a really cool development is that it looks like in two weeks, we're gonna travel to Minneapolis to do a series of interviews, including uh, a sit down with the mayor there, Jacob Fry. Mm. As many people know, Today, the the trial just began, the Derek Chauvin trial. Uh, he's the officer who's being charged with second and third degree murder uh, of George Floyd. So that city's on pins and needles. Mm. And I think it would be a really interesting boots on the ground experience to go there and kind of get a sense of what's happening there. No doubt about it. So, that's, that's gonna be incredible mm -hmm. uh, for you to get in there and, and weigh in and feel it, it should be should be heavy and by then who knows where the trial will be. I know, I know. Or the mayor, I mean, I can't imagine the stress that the mayor is, is shouldering at the yeah. moment. He could suddenly become unavailable, but I just think it's important. You know, I wanna understand it better and the opportunity presented itself and why How did not? that come up? Through uh, my buddy, Brogan Graham, who's been on the show, he's a buddy of mine. He's the founder of November Project. He used to live in San Diego, but he moved to Minneapolis a couple of years ago and um, he's he's uh, running buddies with with Jacob. Yeah, you said he's a, a really good runner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Mayor Fry is a very good runner. Yeah. So hopefully get out on a run with him as well, mm. which should be interesting. Um, in other news, I got into a bit of a Twitter spat. I saw that <laughs> the other day. Well, it's kind of a one-sided Twitter. Spat. It's not like he responded, <laughs> right? No, he didn't. But I, I I don't know. I was feeling like a little bit spicy mm. in response to this tweet. Uh, that was posted by Senator Marshall, Dr. Roger Marshall from Kansas, who yep. was railing, there was a video, he's railing against Meatless Mondays, like it's some kind of crazy government overreach. And he was spouting, he's a, he's a, he's a physician, but he was spouting all this nutritional nonsense and I just couldn't let it stand. So I Old popped school. in there and kind of shared my, I don't do that. Like I'm not, I, I'm not like a, you were polite. A, a shit stir no, but you were on, polite. on Twitter. Was yeah. I polite? You were, yeah, you I said I was, senator. You said, excuse well, I, me, senator. I said, senator. quote unquote, <laughs> senator. I mean, that was kind of snide, I think, actually. 
But the engagement on that tweet was so crazy that I was like, oh, this is how people build their following on Twitter. Like they, they say outrageous someone. stuff. Yeah, like, <laughs> you know, not well, that he that's was doing it too, though. Practice. I mean, he was attacking meatless. He's, right. He opened the door. And it, well, well, he was saying all kinds of stuff like, if you're, a, it, it, it was in reference to, imposing meatless Mondays right. in high like schools, schools, right? Yeah. right? And he was yeah. saying that if you're a high school athlete, there's no way that you can make this work. It's just, it's, it's gonna be impairing children. Right. And I just think that that's untrue. Why would you silly. take good protein out of that? And this house? is a guy who's propped up by big ag and the meat and dairy industry. No so he's you know, probably on the receiving end of some lobbying dollars. And his constituency is making sure that those industries are chugging away as always. So of course he's gonna take the side of, of, of those industries. And the real, like the, the, the government overreach isn't meatless Mondays. The government overreach is propping up this industry that's you know, going the way of the dodo. No doubt. And he's also in the receiving end of Rich Roll's boot in his ass, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> No, it wasn't that, it wasn't like that. <laughs> anyway, uh, and uh, also um, we should talk about Kevin Roos. Yes. Who was on the show. Famous artist. To, <laughs> yeah, now he's, a, now he's a, yeah, he basically is one of the most highly paid artists in the world, <laughs> right? Yes. Um, it kind of came up it. on our podcast. We were talking about NFTs and he was considering the idea of doing a book and releasing it as an NFT. But what he did on the heels of the podcast was release an article, which was about NFTs mm. as an NFT. And he auctioned off that article, the first in the 170 year history of the New York Times to be distributed as an NFT, a PNG file that ended up at auction raising over $500,000 for charity, which is bananas, right? <laughs> but who wants that? <laughs> who wants well, that? it's like, I have the first, NFT from the New York Times okay. ever, I guess. Okay. It's bragging rights. I mean, who who wants the Mona Lisa? And we can go down this rabbit hole again, right. but you know, I think whether you can get on board with this idea or not, this is the world that we now live in. It's a currency, right? Is what it is. It's just another currency. In certain respects. Yeah. I mean, it's a currency like like a painting is a currency, right. I suppose. It's a non-fungible token, Adam, <laughs> is what it is. I know, I know. <laughs> But, I know what it is, yet I have no yeah, idea what the it is. The kind of just meta nature of the whole thing. And, and, and also Kevin's like sheer confusion and delight on Twitter yes. at how this thing unfolded was really kind of fun to but what's watch Kevin's and take? Relish. What's Kevin's take on this? What do you think? Zero, I mean, it's for charity, right? Oh yeah, it's for yeah. His yeah. his financial take was nothing. Right. Yeah. yeah. I thought you meant his like no. hot take. I'm sure the part of him's like, damn. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> well, I'm sure he's thinking. Maybe I really should do that book as an <laughs> NFT, right? Yes. And it's made me think, cause we talked about this last time uh, about uh, creating an NFT from the first episode of this podcast. And of course there's the environmental concerns, which are the real impediment. I would have done it already if it wasn't for that. Right. But how does that balance out if we auction it off for charity? Are you looking for me to enable this NFT adventure? Because <laughs> yeah, I am your hype are man. You gonna be, are I'm you gonna the, call your Al-Anon sponsor? Go for it. I, I'm the, <laughs> my, my job is to say, go for it. That's not your job. Your job is to tell okay. me what you think. Um, I think that you should wait until it's on to that, uh, it's not right. Ethereum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just wait. But then the bubble will be burst. 
It's true. What do you think yeah. the first episode would go for? But what if what if what if we raised we gave the money to like the Honold Foundation, which is all about solar energy? So how would that balance out? I guess it's it would depend on how much question. you raised as to whether it would cancel out the the carbon footprint that was required to mint the NFT in the first place. This particular riddle requires a smarter person than me. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, know. I, I know the people to ask. Some some yeah, yes, some yeah. Sort of blockchain person, yeah. Out there someone can who run the numbers on that. Exactly. Maybe. maybe we can get the blockchain to run the numbers if we should do the blockchain. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> should we turn to the Iron Cowboy ticker? How about this guy? He we is have, picking this, it up. This has become like a just a you know basically a cornerstone of roll on right, like checking in on the Iron Cowboy. How could it not be? This guy yeah. is like gone from basically barely making through these marathons to actually picking up the pace and, and going hard. He does seem to have had a bit of a renaissance in terms of his energy and enthusiasm and mood lately, hasn't yeah. he? Yeah. So we're on day 29 as of today, which is Monday. He is going strong. There is this turning of the tide. He looks strong. His mood seems elevated. And all of this, despite what appears to be some pretty insane weather that they've right. gone through. like. <laughs> If I was him, I would have started this thing in like May, you know. But Seems he doesn't like he doesn't could, like the heat. Ah, uh, he doesn't like he doesn't do there. he doesn't do well with the heat. Yeah. But instead, he's going through sleet and snowstorms and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, he does maintain a pretty high vibe. So I I have kind of a positive negative spin on all of this. Give it to but me. But before we get into that, let's talk about the why because yes. that's something we talked about when yes. you were heading into the Goggins Challenge yes. and James posted about that the other day. He posted about the why, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that was a callback on your question about you, the why? You, you think he'd listen to the podcast and he's like, I need to declare my why. <laughs> no, I don't think so. So this is um, something that the, you ultra athletes talk about your why is a lot. I feel like there's a snarkiness in how you just said that. I didn't that. mean it that way. Yeah. No. You ultra athletes <laughs> like to talk about the why, like it's some kind of, you know, no, I mean, like, like sort of uh, mental exercise and nonsense. Or a mental exercise period, just yeah. like in the fact that like, it's something that you guys do consider and talk about and, and, and think about before taking on something that seems uh, kind of like a superhuman attempt. It's something but I think you, I think that should be a question everybody should be asking themselves all the time about whatever it is that they're investing their time and energy in. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But he said specifically, um, that his why was knowing there are millions of people in the world that need a little spark to light their sparkle and don't know where to find that spark. Mm. In his words, if I can be the spark for just one person to believe in themselves, that's enough. And I think that's great. I appreciate that. And I, 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 you know what I, you know what I like about it is that it's honest. What you see a lot with endurance athletes, they'll declare their why as being a charity or I'm doing this for the kids or I'm doing right. this for spina bifida or whatever it is. And those are all laudable things to raise money for charity, which is something that James is also doing in the in the pursuit of this goal. But I always find those to be somewhat disingenuous. It's right. like, you're not really, you're no. really doing it for you. Come right. on, right. you know right. what I mean? Right. Like, let's be honest. No one spends You're doing it days. to see if you can right. do it. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to say you're doing it because of this other thing. Right. Um, but I think that that I, I find, you know, James's declaration on this to be quite earnest and and, and I think it's cool. And listen, you know, I'm a huge fan as as, you know, many of you guys know, I was early on board with James. 
Um, before he even attempted his 50 Ironmans and 50 States in 50 days, I had him on the show when very few people were paying attention to what he was doing. Um, I had him on after the show, I ran the final marathon with him in that attempt. And I've always elevated this guy's message. I just think he's a beautiful, amazing soul, an incredible mm. athlete, of course, an incredible family man. I've had the opportunity to see him deliver his keynote. He's a mm. very gifted public speaker. His mm. presentation is unbelievable. Um, and what I like about this Conquer 100 challenge, uh, the sort of you know feat itself aside, is how incredibly inclusive and participatory it is. Mm. He's developed this amazing community um, around this event. He's got crazy support, all these people that show up every single day on Instagram. He's just crushing the Instagram game it's with amazing. like amazing stories constantly. Who's doing that? His you daughter, think? well, I think his daughter and his wife, Sonny, are, are probably managing most of it. His daughter is crushing it. Yeah. You know, she's checking in all the time. Sunny started sharing her perspective on stuff yep. and answering questions that people have for her, like what's it like to be James's wife, and you know how are you taking care of yourself and all of that. And she's been very kind of engaged and 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 forthright yep. about where she's coming from on all of this, which I think is cool. He's got his wingmen, Aaron Hopkinson and Casey Robles, who are just hilarious. I mean, these guys like talk about good friends. Mm. Like they just show up for James. 110%, they did this on the 50-50-50, the they're doing it again. And they, they're like comedians, like they're participating alongside of him, but they keep the mood light. Like they're, they're literally his court jesters and his, and his you know, ultimate support team. Well, like, you have to laugh cool. at it, right? You have to laugh at it. Well, it's the absurdity a, of the whole thing. Because it's yeah. this huge dark tunnel he's in. But the thing is you would, you would think like, that it would all be about the darkness and right. the heaviness. But when you watch the Instagram stories, it's like they're laughing, right. they're having fun, they're joking. And yeah, I guess that's a, uh, that's a strategy, right? right. Like, I just know when I'm super tired, like it's very hard to get into that headspace. Yes. Like you become really grumpy and difficult to be around. And he seems to be pretty jovial and convivial like throughout the entire thing, which is unbelievable. Yeah. So that's cool. I mean, these guys, Aaron and Casey, you know, truly BFF goals. Like mm. if you could be so lucky to have friends like these guys. Um, and the fact that they all seem to be having fun, I think that's great. I mean, on the negative, so that's the positive. Okay. But I think, you know, I would be remiss um, in not sort of sharing a, a different side of this. Um, you know, I think what's unique about James is that typically, the mind caves into the body, right? And Goggins talks about this all the time. Like the, the mind gives in, you know, when the body still has 40% left or whatever. Right. It's the mind that goes first when the body is capable of more. But I think with James, it's actually the opposite. I think this guy's mind is, is much stronger than his body. Maybe mm -hmm. his mind is 40% stronger than his body. And that's very unique and something to be celebrated. Um, but he's so mentally tough that I think if he had his leg amputated in the middle of this whole thing, <laughs> that he'd still figure out a way to like finish it, right? <laughs> I have no doubt that he possesses the will to complete this insane challenge. Mm. Um, and that he will very well compel his body to complete it. But I would, I, I do think it would be, 
irresponsible if I didn't at least voice some concern regarding the long-term health complications that he's risking by doing this. I really, do, I love James. I don't want him to break his body beyond repair and end up walking with a cane at, at 40. Mm. And I suspect that under the best circumstances, it's going, if he, if he completes this, even if he pulled the plug now, it's gonna take his body a really long time to recover. It could be a year, it could be years. I mean, the adrenal fatigue alone. Mm. So if anybody can do it, this guy can certainly do it. I don't doubt him for a second, but I would just hate to see him push his body beyond irreparable limits. So do you, you, do you want him to tap out? No, I don't want him to tap out. I just. I know that he has a lot of support and he goes home, you know, during the transitions and at night and he's got all kinds of people working on him. So I presume that he's having his blood drawn. He's got doctors who are monitoring him and all of that who would tell him like, look, you're digging a hole you're not gonna be able to crawl out of. Um, would he, would he, if faced with that kind of medical diagnosis, would he pull the plug or would he keep going? Hmm. I don't know the answer to that, but I just care for him. I just don't wanna see him get harmed in the pursuit of this challenge, that's all. I feel like the swim is kind of a break for him. Like the swim isn't the hard part, right? He's The swim's like recovery. Yeah, it's like know? a part of the recovery. But you see him crawling out of the pool, like you how do. ginger he you is do. on it doesn't, it doesn't, like, this dude is worked, it doesn't work. you know? <laughs> So of course it doesn't he is. look easy to get up that get up that ladder. That's yeah. got to be a very tall ladder. He's like, fuck. Now it's the real and shit. And it's there's something <laughs> soothing about like every day you see him crawl up the ladder and yeah. put his 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 Crocs on yeah. and like saunter over into the locker room, you know. And it's like, oh man, now the now it's it like gets a metronome. Real. Yeah, he's like, God, I like that pool. Maybe I wish it was five miles in the pool. Yeah. Um, um, anyway, send him your love. Follow him on Instagram at Iron Cowboy James, and we love you, James. It's very impressive, James. Yeah. And I loved, uh, I just love his little motivation tactics, like wearing 23 and having LeBron be the theme of 23. Mm -hmm. And then uh, each day is a different theme. And, um, and just seeing- You gotta the, mix it up though, right? Yeah, you gotta yeah. keep every day fresh. Yeah. Otherwise, I think they switched up the course a little bit recently. Yeah, right, right. And yeah. he likes that better. Yeah. I, I, I am excited. I, I, we gotta get out. Like as towards the end, we should really road trip out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll fi we'll figure that out. Yeah. I mean, what happened with the 50-50-50, I went out there, did the, you know, I was there for the final day and was hoping to get a podcast with him. Obviously not right after, but the day I hung around the day after and he was just too, it, it wasn't gonna happen. So I went home and then flew back like a week or two later and, mm. and, and did it. Um, but, you know, it's historic and uh, something to be, Celebrated. But if you go out there, don't bring the gravel bike because it would be rude to have a motor. <laughs> that would be rude, right? <laughs> How dare you? No, I would never do that. Can you imagine? I would Seriously, bro? <laughs> it has been funny. Like I've posted my gravel rides on Strava. Yeah. Um, there is an e-bike, you know, it'll upload and then I got to quickly switch it to e-bike. So I'm not, you know, holding myself out as having, you know, rode a, a route, you know, because the stats, right. you know, whatever. Right. Um, but there was a couple like sort of snarky, like seriously, man, you're on an eat. And I was like, look, man, come at me, bro. But like, I'm having fun. Like I'm just enjoying myself. That's I love that about. you're doing that. And I love the idea of it's like, it's like uh, under the bridge down, under the bridge downtown. Like I think of that, that or under the bridge from Red Hot Chili Peppers. Like I walk through her hills because she knows who I am right. about, about LA. Right, right. And the fact that you're unlocking different canyons and, and fire roads, it's like, 
I think that's awesome. Yeah, it's been cool. To, to, to see the city through her canyons is really the best way to see LA and to understand yeah. it. As, and uh, and so to be able to do that and cross that much territory, it's not it's not a small ride. No, I mean, I went down Saturday, I rode, all, I rode over all the, you know, I took trails all the way down into Brentwood through Santa Monica, down through Venice, and then rode back up through PCH, took Las Flores up yesterday. Um, drop down, where did I drop down? Oh, down into the Palisades and through the Highlands. I'd never been there. I didn't, you know, that whole like development in yep. the Palisades, it's way up on the hill. Yep. I'd never knew that existed. Up through Lived sense. here for like 20 years. Really? I mean, I knew there were houses up there, but I'd never driven up there. I didn't know anything about it. Isn't that gated up there? Um, yeah, yeah, but time. you drop down a, tra a trail, kind of drops you in at the top up there. And then I took the roads back down. Anyway. The e bike, the e bike yeah. house thieves. This so, is gonna be the next thing. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Shout out to Specialized, uh, who's my partner in this. Um, I've been really enjoying working with them, and the Creo is awesome. I do need to get a legit road bike and, and a, and a non-e gravel bike at some point. So yeah. I'm working on that. Shout out to Specialized. Don't, it's okay, I don't want one. Don't, don't even <laughs> no. call me. <laughs> I've never seen you on a bike. I did see you on a Super 73 though. I have a fixie. Yeah, that's it. Take I used, on, no, put I gravel used to, tires on it. I used, to, I used to ride back in the day, I did, I, um, but it's been a long time. We'll rectify that. Yeah. All right, man, let's take a break and we'll be back with uh, the big story and more. All right. All right, and we're back. Adam, we got to talk about guns. I know, this man. Uniquely American obsession that sure we have. Is. Since we last convened, two mass shootings, 18 people dead in Atlanta, a white dude motivated by anti Asian misogyny hit three massage parlors and claimed eight lives in Boulder. A Muslim dude shot up a grocery store, King Supers, with an AR 556 pistol bought six days prior. I think he bought it like the day of the Atlanta shooting or somewhere. The guy in Atlanta bought it the day of. The day, uh, the, yeah, but the Boulder guy bought it like the day the Atlanta shooting happened or the okay. day after or something okay. like that. The AR-556 being sort of a pistol version of the mm. AR-15. Okay. And here we are again, mm. you know, gun violence is up 25% from last year. Some of that is fueled in part by intimate partner violence. Gun purchases are up in part motivated by people fearing becoming a victim of gun violence. And we're in this vicious cycle that as a society, we just can't seem to find our way out of. I agree. I personally am starting to feel complicit to be quite honest with you, because um, you know, it happens over and over and over again. And what have I done about it? Mm -hmm. You know, like what I, I, I wrote a story about guns after the Pulse nightclub shooting and the, the Dallas officers were killed by that other sniper. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, and, and I, maybe I gave money to every town or something, but uh, like, that's not really doing much. You know, yeah, that's easy from I the comfort that of my I've, desk. that I've done anything or participated in the solution. I just, when, I, when this happens, I go numb and then I feel powerless yeah. and I don't wanna be among the, Thoughts and prayers chorus. I want to participate in something meaningful, but it's unclear what exactly that is, other than, you know, basically voicing outrage on social media, which right. I don't really think is productive either. It does nothing. Um, let's go through some of the stats, right? So, 
uh, we're not going to talk about thoughts and prayers because this is this is a systemic issue, and thoughts and prayers don't solve it. So, America has more guns than any other country. Three hundred million guns, one for every person in the country. One for every person. Japan has less than one gun per one hundred people. So, and they have ten deaths a year. Mm-hmm. We have. Gun-related murders in our country are 25 times higher than any other country on earth. Um, We have 3.4 gun murders per 100,000 people. Next highest is Canada at 0.6. Right, when you see the graph, there's a, we're referencing a New York Times opinion piece. Yeah. And they show this graph country by country and the US is like, you know, it just looks like it's 20 fold higher than the next closest country. And I give Canada a little bit of a pass there. They, they're at 0.6, but you know, some of those people were Americans. Mm-hmm. Model for regulating guns is the automobile. Like, like right now we have, you, you sent me this interesting story about how the NRA has basically twisted up the second amendment, right? So mm-hmm. we have this, we're in this position where we have no way to control guns because of a few reasons. One is we have this whole chunk of the country that has become connected to the second amendment. The second amendment is the right to bear arms. That was put in there as kind of a placeholder for states to have their own militias. So there wasn't a centralized army that dominated different states, right? Regulated militias. Regulated militias. Which is, it's regulated militias comma. Mm which is the part of the second amendment that gets glossed over in this conversation that's been twisted to be all about individual gun ownership rights, which is not really the original intent of the second amendment. Right, and so what happened was the NRA went through a change. Like in the fifties, they were about marksmanship training, firearm safety education. And now in the seventies, they turned into kind of a legal organization to expand the application of the second amendment to include mm-hmm. private ownership and and per- personal protection. Why? Because their members, meaning the arms manufacturers, not the people that pay for membership fees, the individual people, made money off it. And they made inroads in the Republican party mostly and but throughout government um, donating to different campaigns and and next thing you know you have, it makes it almost impossible to pass any legislation regulating guns. We call it gun control. That's really the wrong way to put it. It's like, we don't call driver's licenses, automobile control Mm -hmm. or person control. Um, We're just saying, let's make sure people are are safe when they're operating something dangerous. Um, I'd like to, I, I think the NRA could be rebooted to be an organization that does all the things that could help us. Um, that would be talking about background checks, talking about smart guns, talking, taking a public health approach and saying, you know, this is the, if you're gonna own a firearm, these are the things you need to think about. Uh, you know, everything down the line, marksmanship, hunting classes, all these good things, licensing, certifications, mm-hmm. all these things that could actually end storage, up- Storage. Storage. Use, smart guns. Right that if they fall into the hands of, of somebody who's not registered to use it, they don't work. It is interesting that we've been unable to make any inroads on that and past attempts at gun control, which have focused on outlawing certain aspects of guns just end up in end runs around those details to create something that's just outside of the regulation mm-hmm. that still achieves the, the, the end, right? Yes. Like whether it's a particular 
scope or whatever it is on the gun, I'm no gun expert, um, those have traditionally failed. And it is interesting, I mean, what was the inflection point with the NRA where they tipped from being this kind of regulatory body that was heavily invested in, 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 in education and, and the like to now being this absolutist organization that basically won't give an inch on any issue and couches the whole thing in the context of governments trying to take your guns away from you. I think according to that story, what happened was there was a, um, and you'll link to it, it's called How the NRA Rewrote the mm -hmm. Second Amendment. And, um, you know, used to be on their, on their uh, I think I have it in here, on their uh, door of their main office in DC were, were letters that kind of was like embossed on the door, firearm safety, education, marksmanship training, shooting for recreation, and now, there is an abridged version of the Second Amendment that mm -hmm. that it takes it completely out of context. Right, and I think what happened was there was a quote unquote revolt against the leadership in the NRA, which at the time was for gun regulation, and from the '50s mm -hmm. all the way to the '70s, mm -hmm. and the whole board got fired and someone else took over, and that so in began this kind of long game of rewriting laws and 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 getting through the courts to expand civil liberties or uh, I call it civil liberties, but to expand the meaning of these amendments to include conservative principles like mm -hmm. bearing arms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the second amendment literally says a well-regulated militia, a well-regulated militia comma, being necessary for the security of a free state comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms comma shall not be infringed. So it's a sentence that's rife for all different kinds of interpretations, but nowhere in there does it reference directly the individual's right to bear arms. It is specifically in reference and that comma after regulated militia to me hammers it home that this is all in the context of arming a regulated militia. And it's the third the clause. Individual. Yeah, and it's that third clause, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's the only thing they have on their door now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the first part of it gets forgotten. And I think, you know, the founding fathers would <laughs> would be turning in their, in their graves at how this has been exploited. Mm. Um, so what's the way forward? I mean, one of the arguments that gets thrown around a lot is it's a mental health argument. This is about the mental health of these people this idea that we have more mass shootings because we have more mental health problems, but the data doesn't really support that. No. Countries with high suicide rates tend to have low rates of mass shootings. They found that video games don't correlate. Racial diversity and immigration issues also don't correlate. And it really is, and this is you know, borne out by the data that it's about access to guns. The mm -hmm. more access you have to guns, the more shootings and deaths you're going to have. And if we look at a couple of different case studies, you know, Sandy Hook being uh, obviously the one of the most horrific, every one of them's horrific. Sandy Hook is obviously on a, a mm -hmm. scale because we're talking about kindergarten children and, and whatnot. Um, there was uh, I think an advertisement that was connected to that where he bought a certain rifle or he wanted that rifle, his mother bought it for him as a gift. Um, 
because it was a, a lot like you know some some ad he'd seen where it's about about empowerment about young men and mm -hmm. empowerment and uh he went out and and created did that horrible crime and right afterwards the victims couldn't really sue the gun manufacturer because the government had passed a law basically a writer on some other law making it impossible to sue companies for use of their products in a crime mm -hmm. um everyone thought that it had been challenged a couple of times it always had been upheld um a lawyer in connecticut named josh koskoff took on that challenge of maybe challenging he found another way of arguing against that and the gun manufacturers in the nra didn't take it seriously because they'd won so many times on it and they showed up in court and the judge gave them the go-ahead to sue Mm. And it became this new way of approaching this problem, basically, because mm -hmm. if if the companies now kind of like using Rico to go after the mob, exactly. And if the if the if the gun manufacturers suddenly had to pay the victims of these crimes, right. then they would do things like they wouldn't fight things like smart guns, where your where your fingerprint mm -hmm. is the only way that you can fire right. it. You, 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 it's it's an alignment of incentives, basically. Right. So when the gun manufacturer is not incentivized to make sure that these things are safe and from a product liability perspective can make the argument that the gun was used in the manner in which it was manufactured, there, there, was, nothing, um, there was nothing dysfunctional about the gun, right. right? The gun was used and the gun worked properly. So therefore the gun manufacturer bears no culpability for this. But if you say, that's the argument, right? right. So, but if you say, actually they do, where are you hanging your hat on that argument though? Like, how does that, I'm trying to wrap my head around how that works. The argument is if you are creating a product and advertising a product in a certain way and, it is, and then it's used and you pretend it's not your fault, basically you have some responsibility for your product and how it's used. Mm. Why are you selling where it? Do, how can you draw, that's tricky though. Like yeah. where do you draw the line with that? Well, that's the question, right? Yeah. So, you know, the, the real question is, we should all be asking ourselves is why can we go in and buy an AR-15 with high capa capacity magazines and things like that? What's the use it's of insane. that? It's insane. It doesn't make any sense. It's absolutely insane. Right. It's totally outrageous. It makes me furious. Right. Why can't we get our shit together? Uh, the, the, the citizenship is overwhelmingly in favor of universal background checks. There are so many things that we Gun could do. Gun owners are in favor. Yeah. There's so many things that we could do. and. It's interesting when you look at how the NRA has handled this by not budging, like not giving an inch, like that's the strategy, like never give in on anything because it's a slippery slope. And because of that tactic, then they've been able to create the situation that we're in right now. But the truth is we need well-informed, logical, rational regulation of this landscape. It's insane it is insane. that we're in this situation and it's gonna continue to perpetuate unless we do something. So now we have Joe Biden as president, we've got a you know Democrat controlled house and Senate. Like, can we get something done here? Well, the answer to that is will, uh, the, will the Democrats waive the filibuster? Mm -hmm. Because the only way you're gonna get 60 senators to support any sort of law um, in terms of regulation of firearms is going to be to get the Republicans to vote for it, A, and you need at least nine of them, which I think is a reach. 
because you yeah. need 60 votes to override a filibuster, or um, you kind of throw away the filibuster for this issue. And if you do that, what happens in the future? Um, but that's the question. You know, this, and it doesn't look like that's happening, right? He's moving on to infrastructure first. So we'll see how, uh, you know, what's go he's going to do something. We'll see what he proposes. Um, we have this kind of brutal cocktail in this country of racism, misogyny, religion, and guns. And this growing absolutism on either side of any hot button issue. Mm -hmm. um, so it makes it hard to communicate across party lines and, and to get anything real done. And then when you have, like take the Atlanta shooting, he was the son of a pastor, an evangelical kind of minister um, he felt he was in violation of his whatever, full of lust or whatever. Mm -hmm. And his solution to that is to eliminate women who are uh, struggling just to get by working in, in these spas in the red light district of Atlanta. I mean, yeah. that's his solution to his own problems. Yeah. It's it's a complicated one because on the one hand, you know, it's basically an anti-Asian hate crime, but it was really motivated by this guy's internal conflict as yeah. much as it was. I, I I don't know that that had those those massage parlors been, you know, populated with masseuses that weren't Asian, that it would have been any different. I don't know enough about it to comment on that one way or the other, but I think it's it's a it's a you know it's complicated in that regard when you dive into like motive, but part of that motive was his in, his guilt, right? It, it was a religiously motivated crime. In it many was. Ways. I think he might have felt the women were less disposable Maybe. If, if they yeah, were yeah, Asian. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And um and so, uh, and then there's the whole history and the certain context now of all the anti Asian hate crimes that are happening all mm -hmm. over the country in San Francisco and New York specifically the most but happening elsewhere. And then this one pops up as kind of like highlight, like it just, it's part of it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, he bought his gun the day of the shooting, a nine millimeter yeah, pistol. crazy. The day of. It's crazy. So you, like, you can't tell me that's not the, like of all these things I just mentioned, racism, misogyny, religion, and guns, which is the one you can control the easiest. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're not looking to control the others. You know, you can't <laughs> right. control them. You can't control a person's- Set against a backdrop yeah. where gun-related murders in the United States are 25% higher than in any other country. Yeah. It's so glaringly obvious that we need to redress this in a meaningful way. It, and yet our ineptitude, because we're so caught up in these traditions and this ideology that surrounds guns, literally people are just getting slaughtered. Mm. You know, I was um, talking a lot about this with my wife. My wife's from Australia, she's from Sydney. In Australia, they had um, their own Columbine and it didn't take long for them to pass legislation and have people turn in their own guns. And I'm not suggesting that we call for everyone turning in their guns, so don't at me about that. But I'm just saying that happened in Australia. And now she sees this happen and it's not the first one since she's been in the country, she's seen a number of them now and then um, what is the news the next day? It's in Georgia. The, after this Atlanta shooting, the thing that's making news, the laws that they pass in the state of Georgia is to make it illegal to bring water to someone standing in line to vote. Right. 
Um, that's what they did. And she's like, where are the priorities of these leaders? Like, that's what mm -hmm. they're doing with their time. Mm -hmm. it's, it's astonishing the lack of leadership in this country. Mm -hmm. And it, it's- uh, Well, meanwhile, wasn't it the, was it the Texas governor who was bummed that Texas was only second in terms of gun purchases? And yeah. he's like, he publicly said something like, we gotta, we gotta be number one. Yeah, who are these donkeys, dude? <laughs> like, how do you vote for I these people? I don't understand. Yeah. Um, I don't understand. And then, you know, then you have this uh, black lawmaker woman who was trying to, I forget her name, I don't have it at my fingertips, forgive me, but she was trying to knock on the door of the governor while he was signing that anti, you know, the voting. In Georgia. They're yeah. into voting control, not, not gun control mm -hmm. in Georgia. And she was arrested. And if you look at the, if you look at the video of her getting dragged away by those guys in crew cuts, it could have been like Bull Connor era. Like these, these bullheaded mm. guys are dragging this professional woman down the, the halls um, when she was just trying to knock on the door of the governor. Um, you know, where are we? What is happening uh, in this country? It's, 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 appa it's appalling and it does, it does scare me. And it makes me wonder like, you know, where do I belong in this place? You know, like if we can't figure out, like we all, you have, we have kids, you know, yeah. like if you can't trust the leaders to remove real big obstacles for our children, cause you can, right? We've had it with, used to be able to nurse your baby in the back seat. Now they have to be in a car seat. Why is that? Yeah. Didn't uh, yeah. Delta Airlines get dragged because they supported that voter suppression law? <laughs> Did they? There was something about that. I just, I, I don't know enough about it. There was a headline yeah. about that. But, but Atlanta, is Atlanta the Delta hub? Atlanta is the Delta yeah, hub. Yeah, so I don't know. Yeah. It must have something to do with that. And then you have um, Boulder, like that's Atlanta. And then in Boulder you have this is what they had Columbine in 99, mm -hmm. Aurora in the movie theater shooting. They had something in Colorado Springs at the abortion clinic. And now you have King That's Supers right. in Boulder. That's right. Um, and they've had like, I think there's more, if you count any multiples of people getting shot and killed, it's, it's beyond those four, but those are like the four real big mass shootings. And it just keeps happening in Colorado. Yeah. So right. well, let me, before we die, there, there is one thing, right? So uh, that I've been thinking about. And that is, if you look at the Vietnam War protests and what happened then, right? The reason that that turned and we were able, and we got out of Vietnam was a couple, there were some major reasons. One of them though, is that the draft had happened mm -hmm. and you couldn't get out of it yeah. anymore. And so now all of a sudden teenagers realized it was their own life and death at stake. It was no longer just about this dodgy war and this oppression of people far, far away and this military industrial complex. It was about, I might get drafted and I might die, right? And so people went nuts and they hit the streets and, the, it, and it grew and it grew and it grew and eventually the government caved. Well, we have now have, we need an uprising like that because more Americans have died of gun violence in America than have been killed in every single war combined. Mm -hmm. So Crazy. so it is a direct threat to us yeah. all. We just, it's just a diffused threat. We don't feel it. That diffusion is at odds with, with progress though, because we don't feel it or right. process it in the same way. But it is as big a threat yeah, yeah. or a bigger threat. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's what it's gonna take. It's gonna take a massive grassroots mobilization like what we saw this summer with BLM, but around gun uh, regulation. That's what it's going to take. 
Yeah, it's hard not to be pessimistic though, because we've just been around this carousel so many times and the outrage cycle just continues, right? It dissipates and then here we go again. And you're like, you're right. If we can't get it done now, if we can't wave the filibuster for this, like, I know. What can we do? I know the fucking filibuster. And then there's, there's the Supreme Court just waiting there as well. Yeah. So. All right. Well, more will be revealed. Um, let's move on. We got a couple more things we got to talk about. All right. Should we talk about? Um, it feels really like. <laughs> this is a bad. Se- like, this is what they call a like, bad segue. This is the worst segue ever. <laughs> But we have this, um, my friend, Toby Morse, shout out to Toby, uh, punk rocker from H2O, my friend, he's been on the show, I did his podcast. When I did his podcast, he had, uh, he had cans of this stuff called liquid death, <laughs> which is a really bad segue from what we were just talking about. <laughs> Not a about. good segue. But it's basically these cans that, they, it looks like malt liquor, they're like 16 ounce black mm. and gold. I remember those. With like gothic writing on it. It's basically sparkling water though. It's like LaCroix for punk rockers. And Toby just had like a whole, like multiple cases of this stuff just sent to the studio. So I just wanted to thank Toby and Liquid Death. I actually like Thanks, that Thanks Toby, taste. that's good. But it's kind of hilarious, right? It's sort of like, if you're really dark and edgy, you can feel good about your sparkling water. <laughs> I guess, I don't know. Pellegrino. It's all marketing. It's yeah. punk rock Pellegrino. Basically, that's what it is, yeah. right? Um, let's talk about Seaspiracy. Let's talk about it. You hadn't watched it when you went out into the frigid Pacific, but you've watched it since. I have watched, I've since watched it. Right, so Seaspiracy, many of you have probably seen it by now, premiered on Netflix last week, produced by friend of the pod, Kip Anderson, who's mm. the co-director along with Keegan Kuhn on Cowspiracy and What the Health. This film he did not direct or co-direct. It was directed by Ali Tabrizi. And it basically is this comprehensive 360 look at what we're doing to our oceans. Uh, it's a deep dive into marine destruction, corruption. And it's similar to Cowspiracy in that it, it, it kind of adopts a similar storytelling um, architecture. Mm-hmm and dives into the conflicts of interest that exist between environmental groups that, we're, that we trust to protect ecosystems being funded by organizations that profit from marine exploitation, the fishing industry, the marine park industry, et cetera. And it's very well done. The cinematography, the editing is compelling. Ali is the, much like Kip in Cowspiracy, Ali is the protagonist. He's the filmmaker and the protagonist in this story who goes on this adventure to learn more about what exactly is going on in our oceans. And I think it's very effective at revealing um, some uncomfortable truths about the fishing industry, about the uh, environmental organizations that are charged with protecting these waterways and, uh, and, and getting into some details about things like bycatch and farm raised fish, uh, the human rights implications and abuses that you see throughout Southeast Asia. And I, uh, I was very impacted by it. I've been trying to get Kip and Allie on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Kip, I don't know if he wants people to know where he is, but he's not in the United States right now. Allie, lives in London, um, 
I'd really like to get both of them on the show to talk about the movie. I'm hopeful that at some point I can make that happen. But until then, it's just you and I, brother, talking about this movie. All right. You had an interesting take on it, though. I do. Uh, well, I don't know if it's interesting, but I have a take. Uh, I, I think I have a few takes. One is it's great to see a young filmmaker dive into this world with such passion and mm -hmm. energy and heart. You know, he clearly loves the ocean, cares about it just like we do. And he's gifted with a camera. So and, it's crazy those those sequences of him as a kid, and he's yeah. literally wearing the Jacques Cousteau red <laughs> yeah. hat, and he's yeah. got the striped shirt. Like you know, he was channeling. You could see his future, you know, being forecast. Yeah, and he and he cares a lot, and that's really important. And so I'm all for it. Um, powerful footage, especially at the end, and good call to action. So uh, at the end as well, I don't want to spoil it. We don't want to spoil it, right? So. Mm -hmm. um, but I do have some issues with it. And the overall one is of sensationalism. So he covers a grab bag of issues we've seen before um, in various documentaries and reporting. And in my opinion, covered better. Uh, the Cove, Ghost Fleet, he, when he gets into the issue with slavery and Thai fishing boats, mm -hmm. that was covered in a great movie uh, in 2019. It came out called Ghost Fleet which is a profile of a Thai labor activist um, and Nobel Pr Peace Prize nominee named Patima Tung Puchayakul. And she is based in Thailand and she's been responsible for liberating 7,000 uh, Thai, Burmese, Lao and Indonesian fishermen from these right. kinds of- Well, we could we could take these points, Siri Adam. I mean, I think in fairness to, to Ali and Kip, um, that movie, which I haven't seen was, a single issue focused yeah. film that yeah. dove deep into that one thing. Whereas Ali and Kip are trying to cover many different things. So they touch on those human rights abuses, but the whole movie isn't about that one single thing. And that's something that I knew almost nothing about other than just sort of hearing about it tangentially. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. I mean, I, I just think overall, there was this sense of taking the worst of the worst cases like the Maui case in Scotland, cherry pick stats on fishing, um, going after third-party certification systems, which uh, I think, you know, we, we talk about fair trade certification and, and products, um, which is the same thing as what the Marine Stewardship Council does. Um, and, and kind of casting them as in, in a very negative light. And when there's much more nuance involved, um, I know about cherry pick stats with fishing because I did a story on overfishing. And it's very easy to find a stat that that sounds very alarmist when you look at all the reports. But if you do deep dives, you find that different parts of the world have very different regulation bodies and, gov and governing bodies. Mm -hmm. And it's not as simple as it made, makes it sound. So you're, when you're using the most sensationalistic data, it's not necessarily the best data. So I would just question that. Uh, there's this kind of maximum journalism is, the later you are to the story, the smarter you have to be. And because he's taking on so many different aspects of what's going on with our oceans, um, I think it's hard to get to that level. Right, you, but you can't also, and I'll just, I'll be devil's advocate yeah. here on behalf of the film. Uh, you have to appreciate the spotlight that these filmmakers are placing on some pretty, uh, horrific ills. Yes, the, the the misalignment of incentives in the labeling industry. I mean, the fact that 
you know, basically these, you know, quote unquote nonprofits make their money off of granting labels. So they're inherently incentivized to grant these labels. And then when you have the interview with the guy and he's like, basically, I can't guarantee that well, this the, is the dolphin, dolphin safe. The dolphin safe tuna I mean, situation. Outrageous. I'm not defending the dolphin safe tuna situation, but the Marine Stewardship Council is is a nonprofit because it is created by, it is funded. You don't pay for- Well, here, here's the thing. Yeah. Like, Certainly there are people doing good things yes. in the world and there are there are well-intentioned um, activists and nonprofits out there that I have no doubt are making a positive impact in this space. Clearly, the point of this movie, I think, if I was to read their minds, was to provide an introductory course on where we've lost our way mm. across a variety of different issues with respect to our relationship with the ocean. So whether it's, commercial fishing with the trawling and the bycatch, whether it's shark fins, whether it's, you know, whaling, whether it's what's going on in in, in Japan with the 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 dolphin slaughtering, yep. like all of these things are horrible, horrible ills that yes. most people are completely unaware of. So yes. it's very energizing and enervating to watch this movie and realize that um this might not be what you think it is. And and your pescatarian diet, which you thought was on the better end of, you know, perhaps a more econo e ecologically sound nutrition approach, perhaps might be misguided. Yes. Right? When you when you realize that it, it basically disabuses you of this idea of of you know the fisherman casting his pole into the into the sea right. and pulling out fish one by one. And you realize the damage that commercial fishing is reaping irreparably on the oceans. When when George Monbiot, who I think is a highlight of the movie, that guy yes. I've been following him forever. He writes for The Guardian on a variety of environmental issues. He was so solid in the movie. And when he's talking about, um, you know, basically he just puts matters to rights in terms of how blunt he is about how bad this problem is. And Oppenlander, who also was in Cowspiracy talking about um, how little of the oceans are actually protected. Like, what is it? 5% is meant to be. 5%. Um, but then it's actually like less than 1% that's so actively protected and preserved in a, in a, in a responsible manner. Probably, he probably means 1% is no catch zones. And there's, mm -hmm. there's uh, you're allowed to have recreational fishing in some um, MPAs. And I would guess, I would think that that 5% would preclude commercial fishing. Maybe there are some MPAs that allow some regulated commercial fishing. Um, we've talked about the 30 by 30. That's a, that's something I wish this movie got into more mm -hmm. is that there is there are there are there is a movement afoot internationally to try to protect 30% of the oceans by 2030. And that means make them real marine protected areas. Um, that's and that what, would demand basically, you know, the movie makes the point that yeah. that requires a policing effort, right? Like the open seas it's anything goes well, and you see that being played out off the coast of Somalia right. and and what led to you know basically the the whole pirate thing right well so the the idea of if if you if you're if you haven't <laughs> paid attention i mean this is pretty well covered area but right. like somalia's fishing fisheries were decimated by international fishing mm -hmm. units and whether that was illegal or whether they paid government uh, you know, officials in Somalia for the rights to go in and just take out all the fish. Basically all these villages along the coast in Somalia then had to turn to piracy because they right. lost their food source. Mm -hmm. um, 
I would never defend trawling. I, I, I think commercial fishing has a lot of issues. I've written about it in the past and I'm not in favor of unregulated fishing, illegal fishing. I think it's horrible. Um, but when you make a movie, it would be nice if the stats weren't cherry picked and if the issues weren't sensationalized because they are important issues and you want to make sure people understand them in a more nuanced way. If you use the worst case scenario as your case study, then you go and start to try to have a conversation with somebody else about it later and try to really gather the energy. You end up in a conversation with someone who may be skeptical of your one movie awakening. Do you know what I'm saying? And so I think as a as a piece of journalism, which a documentary should be, it would be nice if just if if this the facts were the facts and not used in a sensationalized way. That's my only point. But I, I do agree that highlighting these horrible things that are happening in the ocean is important. You know, I think it's- I mean, listen, if, if you watch the movie and the only thing you take from it is what's going on with bycatch and trawling, yes. like that's enough, like enough already. Look what we're doing to these oceans. And because it's out of sight, out of mind, we're completely blithe and unaware to the incredibly deleterious environmental impact. Like when, who's the woman who's his hero at the end, the legendary- Sylvia Earle. Sylvia, yeah. yeah. And and she's talking about she's uh, fabulous. Yeah, she's incredible, yeah. right? Like she really anchors it. Like she gives the end is fabulous. She gives it a gravitas, yeah. I think, and allows you know you to really kind of embrace the message because she's so highly credible. Yeah. and and such a legend. Um, but basically, her saying there is no such thing as sustainable fishing. Like right. I believe that. Like Oppenlander said that in Cowspiracy. He's like, fishing. You know, f- fishing is by definition overfishing at this point. And See, but the, that, the that's, extent that's, to which that's we not rely exactly, that's so but it is and and the extent to which we rely on a robust marine ecosystem to sequester carbon I think yes. is another point that Earl makes that's so important to understand and and how that's so much more important than you know we put a lot of attention on the rainforest but we completely overlook the importance of marine ecosystems in this equation. I agree. It's out of sight, out of mind. People don't care about the marine ecosystem, even though it's responsible for every second breath. The, the, the plant life in the ocean is a, is a carbon sequester, carbon sequester, carbon sequestration system that is number one in the world. 80% or something of our carbon is sequestered in the ocean. Mm -hmm. Um, The, and the marine ecosystem is in trouble. Um, Reefs are dying. We're losing kelp forests here. Um, even just here in Malibu, there I don't know if you see them, but in, in in right around starting right before Christmas and for several months, you get trawlers that come in from Marina del Rey and then from Oxnard and Ventura, and they come and they scoop up uh, squid, and they bring out their Christmas lights on their ships and they attract all this squid to the surface and they they put their nets out mm-hmm. and they bring them in. And often they bring in sea lions and there's guns on these boats and they shoot sea lions sometimes because sea lion will bite your ass. Um, Do they bring in dolphins? They very well might, Mm -hmm. we don't know. There's not someone out there really patrolling that. Well, that's the point of the movie too. Right, no, I agree with you. These things are completely unpatrolled. Totally agree with you. And there's, and but there are people that will, there's gonna be an officer on, at the harbor when they come back in. So there, there is some control of it in the United States. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is some, um, but you know, and sometimes there's observers on the boats. Right. Um, that does happen, but we have problems just here. But at the same time, 
there is are things we can do. Marine protected areas are one way of, of creating nurseries so fish can replenish. Like George said in the movie, leave the ocean alone. Mm -hmm. If you leave the ocean alone, it will replenish itself. Right. And um, but the one issue I will say to or say it was Paul Watson. Paul right? Watson. He was Sea Shepherd guy. They both did, I think. Yeah. And um, but you know, to say any fishing now is overfishing, I think is oversimplification. It's not exactly true. Like a spear fisherman goes out and shoots one fish. Um, that's not overfishing. That's right, a sustainable mode. Right, but I think it, it disabuses you of the idea that that's how fishing is performed. Like it depends it, where you're eating your fish, right? If you're buying commercial fish and you don't know where it's coming from, that's your problem. You but have, also yeah. the, the movie hammers home the point that you can't, it's very difficult to know where your fish is coming it's from. Difficult even to if you're a well-minded, intentional consumer trying to purchase fish that was right. raised in the in 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 a, in a in in a in a more I guess I'll say more I, I don't think there's you know it's like I don't eat fish but um, in a more responsible way I guess yeah but there are you know there there are changes in in fi he he goes after fish farming Paul Hawken thinks uh, open ocean aquaculture is one of the top twenty things you can do in drawdown and and open ocean aquaculture would be taking a fish farm, putting it in an ocean where there's current that blows through, there's low density pens, they're being fed feed that comes from algae, not from wild fish. Mm -hmm. And there are fish farms doing that. And, and it's, it's a very small percentage, admittedly. And there is this dream of maybe somehow stringing you know, clams and oysters off these pens, which feed off of the fish effluent, the poop and, the, and, and all of that and grow. And you have kelp kind of growing at the same time and you have this ecosystem to regenerate. Uh, there are different ways of maybe approaching the problem, but the way in this film kind of all fish farms go the under- Predominant fish farm though is of the model that you see in Scotland. And I think it's- That's it, the worst case scenario mm -hmm. in the world. So my, my point is you can't, t if you take the worst case scenario in the world and say, this is how it is, I don't know that's responsible journalism. I guess that's my problem. Right, I don't know that, that Ali or Kip would, would call themselves journalists though. Right, right, right. That's the thing, Yeah. right? So you're, you have to, you're looking at this through the lens of, through the, through the eye of, a, of an investigative journalist. Like that's your approach to the subject matter. That's not necessarily their approach. Their approach is more certainly like, it's more active. It's more activist yeah. oriented, right? Yeah. Like so, understanding that, um, I think you can appreciate it for what it is and the message that it's trying to put out there, and 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 the kind of um, you know energy that it's trying to bring to this discussion. So you can hate it, you can love it, you can disagree with it, but it's provocative enough to provoke conversations about the subject matter. It's a hit. Yeah, it's a hit. It was it's in the top hit. ten on Netflix. It's a hit. It's so, crushing. You know, and it. it's beautiful to watch. It's amazing. And let's just shout out just for a minute. Sorry, I interrupted you. No. But uh, how badass is that fucking Sea Shepherd boat? I love it. The 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 Sam, um, what's his name? Uh, the guy who started the, the the guy who created is it Sam uh, Sam Cedar? No, not Sam Cedar. Who started Sea the, Shepherd? No, no, no. He was a huge donor. Oh, to see Shepard before he died of cancer. I don't I think know who he, he is. I think he created the Simpsons. Oh, so he made a ton of money. Sam Simpson? No, 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 no. What am I doing? I'm gonna have to Google it right now. Yeah, Google now. it. Um, well, Sea Shepherd. I love Sea Shepherd. I mean, what Sea Shepherd and and he goes with them I in can't Liberia. I can't remember this. And Sea uh, Shepherd. Sam Simon. Sam Simon. Yeah, the boat is called the Sam Simon. 
I mean, he, um, the, Paul Watson, what he has done and, and their work and just recently in incredible. the Great Australian Bite to raise awareness to how much, like the Galapagos of South Australia, basically, um, and how much life there is there. And they, they stopped a big oil development project um, in, in South Australia with their work. I mean, it's just, they're, prob they're on the short list of my favorite environmental organizations. Incredible. Yeah, incredible, incredible what they're incredible doing. People. Um, also shout out to uh, friend of the pod, Paul DeGelder. Oh yeah, it was great truth to see bombs him. on sharks. He was fabulous. Was amazing, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It is a great primer. Like if you're not familiar with these issues, I'm probably too familiar with these issues so that I get grumpy. Well, you're but just, you're getting caught up in the details, Adam, <laughs> come on. <laughs> these it's like human rights, you know, trawling, yeah. Yeah. Uh, bycatch, shark fin soup, like all yeah. these things are are new ideas to a lot of people. That's right. And we just think the ocean is a, you know, a resource that will give and give and give forever. And to appreciate just how delicate it is and how uh, and how misinformed so many of us are. I mean, one of the things that I liked a, a lot was the whole, you know, we're talking about microplastics and how all that, all the energy goes into, you know, no straws and all of that, yeah. and how little of an impact that is in comparison to what's really going on With and where we should fishing. be placing our focus. Yeah, but I mean, overfishing isn't as underreported as he thinks it is. So, like, but to the to the average person, it is. You think it is? Not to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh. That's a good question though. The one question that comes up for me when I think of these alternate, cause he talks about plant-based shrimp and plant-based fish and these mm -hmm. plant-based solutions. And um, there's, there's shots of him eating it. Um, the problem when you have, when you take this diffused kind of economy like fishing was, and certainly subsistence fishing is and, and ranching and that kind of thing. Now there's a whole industrial component and it's, it's there are certainly big conglomerates doing some damage out there. But if you replace it with, you know, a few winners in this kind of capitalistic game of, of, of you know, there's a few companies doing these plant-based meats, is that, is that a good replacement? You know what I mean? Like, like get a few people rich and everybody else is a consumer, is that sustainable for the country, for the world? Well, I mean, that's a whole other podcast that we could do. I yeah. mean, I can go way down the line with you on that. But right now it may just be a few companies, but there's actually like, if you canvas the startup landscape, there are tons and tons of companies that are innovating in the plant-based protein sector, all the way from plant-based alternatives to the cultivated meat landscape and all the you know wild stuff and innovations that are going on there. Certainly some people are gonna get rich, but these are very early days and yeah. there's plenty of room. You know, Julie's got a plant-based dairy company that's very small right now. That's like great. nobody's stopping anybody from- Joining. You know, yeah, yeah, placing, you know, making a footprint right now. And there's a lot of money that's being invested because this is what consumers want. People wanna believe that the food choices that they're making are doing right by the environment. And to the extent that you can develop a plant-based alternative to your favorite fish that is just as nutritionally um, valuable that isn't harming the oceans and plays out in a carbon footprint sense better than marine life. Like, why wouldn't you do that? Like, that's the world that we're moving towards. That's the world that I would like to live in and to kind of, you know, coin, um, 
the Sea Shepherd guy, what's his name again? I Paul forget. Watson. Paul Watson. Why do I? I'm, I told you I didn't sleep very well <laughs> last Paul? night. Um, Commander, right? Commander. He's captain. Um, he's like, look, we're on this, you know, we're on this, this, this blue spaceship hurtling, you know, across the universe, and we've got uh, a life support system, and we've got a crew. And when the crew starts to die, at some point, these life support systems are gonna start breaking down they and will. that's what we're happening. Yeah. So leave the ocean alone. And we're so far from that right now that any inroads in that direction are things that I'm gonna celebrate. There you go. Well, I'd love to, I can't wait to see his next film. He's very talented. Mm -hmm. He is right, yeah. cool. So check it out, Seaspiracy streaming on Netflix. Really quick, because I don't want this to be a four hour podcast. Um, there's a new podcast out called Lost Hills that's produced by Pushkin, which is Malcolm Gladwell's company. Yep, It's hosted by Dana Goodyear, who is a New Yorker uh, writer. And it's all about, it's a true crime podcast series that explores these this, this murder that took place in Malibu Creek State Park, which is literally my backyard. And several attempted murders. And several right? attempted murders. Yeah. And this all took place in June. It was all around June, 2018, uh, where um, a guy called Tristan Baudet was camping with his two daughters mm. and I think his brother-in-law, right? Yeah. It's his brother-in-law and was and shot kids. like basically point blank. Mm. Um, I remember when this went down and this podcast series tells the behind the scenes story of how this happened, who did it, and so many more things that I was unaware of, which are shocking given that this is my neighborhood. It was right down the street from you. Including this guy trying to pick off cars on Las Virginis, mm. shooting at, at ongoing cars on Las Virginis, which is a road I drive on every day. And I remember when this transpired, how shocking it was to hear about this murder. But what you find out in listening to this podcast is that the car shootings took place earlier than that. And there were a couple other people who were shot at in the park, like backpackers and stuff. And none of this was reported to the public. Right. The Lost Hills Sheriff Department kept a lid on it. And I just, it, had, they, had, they, had they allowed people to know what was going on, certainly Tristan Baudet would not have gone camping there and would probably be alive today. Probably. And I just remember how details and little anecdotes and stories amongst people who live in the community started to eke out. And we're like, what is going on? I think at some point, um, my daughters were going to a school that was right off Las Virgenes and there was, they got school was called off because they found a dead body nearby. And I mean, we're only on episode three of this thing, like more is gonna happen, but this is a very idyllic, part of the world, yes. right? And Malibu Creek State Park is where I go running all the time, all the time. And I can't help but think, like I tweeted- Were you like, in his sights? I tweeted like, don't listen to the Lost Hills podcast while you're, while you're trail running <laughs> no, in you Malibu should. Creek State Park, which is exactly what I was doing. <laughs> you're, you're like the um, guy at the beginning of the Noir movie running through the hills. <laughs> right. Wow, this is an amazing true crime podcast. <laughs> Getting shot at, you know? It's unbelievable, um, but there's a lot of interesting Malibu characters that pop up yes. in the storytelling who are all people that I know, and you know, because I you know Cece, I do know Cece. Oh. Yeah, I mean she's a she comes off well. I think she's she's a local muckraker muckraker. Um, I've met her a couple times. 
I, I just know that, you know, she, I don't know her that well, but I would, you know, I see her on Facebook going off about this or that, the other thing, but she's the one who really got yeah. traction on this whole thing and got people to pay attention to it. Yeah, she, she, she rattled the cage of the Lost Hills mm -hmm. station and, and, you know. I mean, I drove by the them. Lost Hills Sheriff Department on my way here today. Mm. Like it's literally our local police department. Right. So it's just surreal and bizarre. To <laughs> you, to you, don't feel, you don't feel you very know? protected, do yeah, you? <laughs> no. Well, it's all fine now. I won't give it away. But anyway, it's very well done. Uh, Dana and the Pushkin team and everybody who worked on the, the show. They're, I've only listened to the first three episodes, but it's it's pretty fascinating. If you like true crime, yeah, and you like true LA crime noir, is where it's at, right? Yeah, it's great. You know? I um, could definitely. I can't wait for the for the series. It will definitely end oh, up yeah. as a series, right? Oh, yeah. Or a movie of the week or something it, yes. like that. It's like, what's the, what was the um, This Dirty is the whole John? podcast model now, <laughs> yes. right? I mean, Wondery built its whole business on that. Dirty John yeah. is, a, is a Wondery show, like just taking the, you know, these true crime podcasts and, and adapting them for television and movies. It's gonna be good. So um, I wanna do a giveaway. Yep. I got some hats here if you're watching on YouTube. Rich Roll podcast hats. We got a black one. We got a black and white one. We got a white and black one, um, and also some of these T-shirts. I never wear like my own swag, but this is the official. Dude, I'd wear your swag. Rich Roll podcast T-shirt. Um, so I want to give away five hats and five T-shirts. Um, there are three steps to um, pitch in for this. The first is subscribe to the YouTube channel. The second is share one of your favorite YouTube episodes on social media. Take a screen grab and email that grab and subscription confirmation to info at richroll.com. And we will pick five people for a hat and five people for a t-shirt. Mm. How's that sound? Sounds good. I uh, still also, I've been remiss the book giveaway that we did the other day. Yeah, what about I it? I gotta go through the comments and 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 pick the pick the winners oh, you've for been, that. We're you haven't do done it yet. Through, no, we haven't done that. That's not a good look, right? <laughs> um, I gotta, I'll take care of that this week for sure. Um, also getting a lot of comments about these coffee mugs, the Rich Roll Podcast coffee mugs. Oh, we didn't, we just have a couple here for the studio, but so many people um, seem excited about that's it. That's not so, a mug, that's an NFT. This is an, this doesn't actually exist. It, well, if you're watching it on YouTube, it doesn't exist in a three-dimensional space, but Like right? we need to start like taking the drinks out of our hands as we're sipping them so that people wonder if they're really NFTs. <laughs> you're, go, you're going down the matrix rabbit hole. Have you been I'm red ready. pilled, Adam? <laughs> I can't, I have a friend um, who right now is probably still typing, trying to red pill me. Right. And by the way, this liquid death sparkling water, uh, I, I'm enjoying it, but they, they didn't sponsor the show or anything like that. It was just a gift from mm. the company and from Toby. So just a comforting gift. Yeah. Um, let's do win of the weeks. You go. Wins of the week, I should say. Um, my, my big win of the week is my buddy, Robbie Bellinger, another friend of the pod. He, uh, many of you might recall, he came on after he ran across America in 2019. Well, as you do. Yeah, as, as you do, right? <laughs> Last week, uh, March 20th, he set the FKT, the fastest known time for most laps logged uh, in Central Park. It's called the Central Park Loop Challenge. In one day, he did 16 laps for just over uh, almost 100 miles, 98.49 miles in 18 hours, seven minutes and 43 seconds. He broke the record by five loops. Mm. It's a six mile loop. Have you ever run that loop in Central Park? No. Oh, gotta do it, man. I know. It's the great, it's my favorite, one of my favorite runs in the whole world. I haven't done the whole it's loop, so I've done a piece of it. It's, um, 
got a surprising amount of elevation. People right. think, oh, you just run around, no. it's flat, it's New York City. But on the north end, as you're kind of rounding the corner and starting to head head sort of southwest, there's a huge hill there. So over the course of the day, Robbie ended up bagging, what was the elevation? It was something like 4,800, yeah, wow. 4,800 feet of, of gain. Um, and the way this whole work, this works, the rules are, you have from five minutes after the park opens at 6 a.m. to five minutes before it closes at 1 a.m. to run as many loops as possible. So he absolutely crushed it. Um, super cool to see this thing happened. And I just so happened coincidentally to do a photo shoot with the guys from 10,000 who were, who were sponsoring Robbie in this endeavor. Um, the guys who documented that um, came out and we did a shoot the other day. So they were telling me all about like what it was like, like they were That's behind cool. him on skate. They're like two dudes from San Diego and they were on skateboards and like getting all this cool stuff with them. And how they fun. gave me all this behind the scenes on on just how badass the whole thing was. Which how about I those was last really cool. five loops? He'd already broken it. And yeah. you know, there must've been a great temptation to just be like, okay, right. cool, I already got it. Like, how do you keep going for like another five? Because he's got like, probably had like six hours left, right, yeah. you know? So he wasn't still. Quit. It's I'm like that kind of stuff. Like it's impressive. Like to right. like I could see the first victory lap, but after a while, you're like, should I keep like that last lap? Mm-hmm. I don't need it. I'm already four laps ahead. But I think what was driving him was to get a hundred miles. So okay. I think after he got his 16 laps, which was just under a hundred miles, I think he he ran until he eclipsed a hundred. Even though it doesn't count because it wasn't a whole other full loop, right? Anyway. Shout out to Robbie um, and classic, instead of just going home and putting on the Normatec boots and chilling, he ends up joining this guy, Hella Sidibe what? on in the Navajo nation. Hella is in the middle of doing his own run across America. I did not, I was not familiar with Hella um, until Robbie put him on my radar, but Hella is in the midst of his transcontinental attempt and Robbie dropped in on him in the Navajo nation and ran some, segments with him, which I thought was pretty cool. Right after um, this. Yeah, right, like right after this basically. Amazing. Which is crazy. So Hella is new on my radar, but I wanted to give him a shout out. He seems to be a guy who's just brimming with inspiration. He seems super cool. He's at Hella Good 9 H-E-L-L-A-H good. And then the number nine on Instagram. So give him a him follow, out. give him a yeah. shout and uh, put a little wind in his sails. Love it. What do you got? We're gonna talk about free diving under the ice. Yeah, I'll just talk about Alexei Molchanov again. Um, he dove 80 meters under the ice in a Siberian lake called Lake Baikal. He's a, an ambassador for this lake now. It's it's one of the largest fresh freshwater lakes in the world. It goes hundreds of meters deep in different areas. Um, it's got, I think, it's, it's like one of the biggest expanses of freshwater there is in the world, just in terms of volume. Uh, maybe the biggest, and it has freshwater seals and all sorts of stuff. And there's villages on the shores and there's been environmental issues um, with Lake Baikal. And so part of his, the reason he did the dive was to kind of raise awareness for this mm-hmm. great lake. Um, but yeah, so he he decided, you know, it, it was a couple of years ago, he's got the, the deepest dive in the history of the sport with a monofin, 130 meters. Mm. He's got the the record for free immersion, which is pulling down the rope um, at 125 meters, you pull down a rope and then you pull back, no friends right. at all. Um, and and so he's 
featured in my book, One Breath, and I've known him since uh, I first started covering the sport in 2013. I've spent time in Russia with him and with his mother who has since passed. His mother is Natalia Molchanova, and she was the greatest in the history of the sport. And she disappeared in 2015 free diving on a fun dive. And, um, and overnight he had to kind of take control of the entire business that he had, he, his mother had built. Mm -hmm. um, and so this story is about this dive and it's also about that experience for him and recovering from that. And one thing I wanted to just kind of uh, bring up was this, this idea of deconcentration. That's something that Natalia taught in free diving. And it's a tool that basically you don't, you, you try to deconcentrate, you don't focus on the discomforts of the free dive. You don't focus on the need to breathe. You don't focus on the busyness at the surface. You don't even focus on how beautiful things are down below. Everything is at a remove and that allows you to stay more present and, and more broad. Um, and, and it makes it, puts you in more control. It's kind of like almost a Taoist way of looking at things. Right, I'm thinking like, this is an approach that I that I would like to apply to my life. Exactly, right? so deconcentration as a tool for diving in life, right? Mm -hmm. and, and it's exactly, that's exactly it. And you know, if you ask Alexi, what, what is the sport of free diving to you? He says, it's about the mind more than, and this is a, he's a great athlete. He's got, you know, incredibly <laughs> thick thighs and calves. He, he works out, he pumps iron, he, does yoga, he does everything. And he's an incredibly fit athlete at 34. But for him to say that, that just shows you what you can do with your mind. Mm. Um, and so I, I just thought that was cool. So we'll link to that story. Um, How many meters did he go? 80 meters wow. In, wow. in, what did we say? In 39 degree. 39 30. degree, 36 degree water, 34 right. degree water. Um, and you know they, they cut the ice with chainsaws and these Siberians, built an ice sauna right there next to right. the hole, which isn't in the story, but they actually literally built out of these bricks of ice, nine tons of ice, they built this sauna, they heated with hot stones and they cut another hole in the sauna. And so after he, he did the dive, he came back out and the whole crew came back out and they like basically had a, had a celebration in the ice sauna and they would like going in the sauna and then diving into the water and coming back out. And that's how they celebrated, so pretty cool. Wow. Adventure. I mean, imagine being 80 meters under the water in 36 degree temp. The day before he was I mean, trying to figure out what, what thickness of the wetsuit like just was. Just the, 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 the composure that you would have to have to not lose it. He um, talks about that. Like when you get down that deep, the, what you wanna do is kick hard to get back because you know how far you have to go, but you can't because it's like an oxygen savings account in your mm -hmm. body. It, all the oxygen's in your blood and it's gonna burn if you kick harder and harder. So you have to tell yourself, even though your body's like rebelling, you're getting these contractions where your body's trying to inflate your lungs, but you can't. The pressure is heavy and you can't open your mouth for obvious reasons. And so you have to kick and keep your composure, the deconcentration. And knowing that your mother died doing this knowing that too. But of course his position is if he had been there, she would not have because there wasn't a pro, there was not a safety diver at her level that was there mm -hmm. at the time. So it was a mistake, mm -hmm. but um, you know, pretty amazing. He had just come from the Maldives, by the way, diving in tropical right, water. That's a, quite a contrast. <laughs> he had one day to practice in I, the lake. I would, I would opt for the Maldives. I'd 
stick around there. Yeah, well, you know, he and he's what's cool about it is the winter is the off season for most of these professional free divers. And a couple of years ago, he decided, you know, I'm going to add some winter diving, just something mm -hmm. else fun to do when he's not busy, like teaching diving. He just had a, his wife just had a baby, too. So he's wow. got, you know, a million things going right. on. But he also has the record for the longest dive, 180 something meters in a in a quarry. How dark is it when you're 80 meters down underneath um, Siberian ice? I mean, it's dark 80 meters down, even in the ocean, in the tropical yeah. in in tropical water. But in Siberian ice, that's like black ice. Right. It's basically midnight. However, um, he had a safety diver, a technical diver, excuse me, at the bottom taking footage, but also there in case something happened. And another one at 45 meters. And those guys had cameras and lights. Mm. So there was periods of, of places where there right. was lights. And then the, the the bottom plate itself was illuminated. And he has a light, like a miner's light uh, that he also, like a pen yeah. light that he uses um, right. even in deep dives in the ocean. So, wow. but it's still dark most of the time. And then he gets down to the bottom and it must've been like mm. blinding for him. Mm. Mm. It was a three minute dive. So a sequel to, to one breath, two breaths. <laughs> One and a half breaths. Yeah. Can I use that? Yeah, you can use that. That one's free, buddy. <laughs> one, the first one's free. Um, hats off, Alexi Chapeau. That's incredible. Um, all right, let's do some listener questions. All right. So the first one I'm going to read because it came in via email all the way from Durban, South Africa. Good day, Mr. Roll. Thank you so much for an amazing, powerful podcast. You truly are an inspiration to me. I am a pediatrician working in Durban and have been running for the last three years now. As with any sport, I sought out books on running and came across Finding Ultra on audio. It was tremendous and I still listen to it on the odd day to gain inspiration. Following the audiobook, I naturally started listening to every podcast of yours. Slowly but surely, I started to adjust my diet and lifestyle with more veggie days than usual. On one bright morning on my way to work, I listened to an episode which featured Ingrid Newkirk. And that evening I told my wife I was stopping meat and dairy. That was around the 8th of May, 2020. And since then, I've been gaining all the benefits from the change. I feel that there were many straws that were placed in, onto the camel's back to eventually get me to that point. But I can assure you that if it was not for your life story and podcast, I wouldn't be at the most fulfilling time of my life. I did want to ask a question on Roll On, but being in South Africa, I'm not able to leave a voice note. My question deals with how to properly address being with my friends nowadays, as I find it difficult to still hang out and spend time with them. I've actually become quite an introvert and spend more time with matters dealing with work and family, which I prefer and enjoy thoroughly. Is this something you you initially experienced? Um, this is a great question. Uh, thank you, Kumaran. Kumaran Moodley. Kumaran Moodley. That's an incredible name. So a couple observations before I answer the question. A, unbelievable name. Two, Pediatrician spelled P A E. I appreciate that. Right? Are we sure that wasn't a uh, the, like the sort of uh, the Commonwealth oh, spelling? Yeah. I'm sorry, I thought that, that was a typo. And then thirdly, uh, I like how it was a bright morning on his way to work. He's got when he the, listened to that podcast. He's got the writerly gift. I'm sorry, yeah. Kumaran, for not saying it was you who sent in the note. Yes, Kumaran Moodley. Yes. So, if I'm understanding this correctly, my sense is that. Kumaran's uh, introversion is motivated at least in part by a shift in his value system, which in turn is creating this growing distance or valley between what he cares about and that which his peers value. Mm. Um, and it appears 
that he feels sheepish about just being who he is with his friends, um, which is not a good place to be. So I, I guess my first question is, is this this move towards becoming more withdrawn and introverted because you're afraid of being judged or because your values have shifted such that you now feel you have less in common with those people that you had been spending time with. If it's the former, again, not a fun place to be. So I would encourage you to do a little internal inventory on what the downsides are of just being who you are in your fully expressed state. Mm. If your friends castigate you, then are they really your friends, mm. right? If you feel like if I tell them that I'm vegan or whatever else is going on with him and they're gonna mock him or make fun of him, maybe some of that is just friendly repartee, but if there's something more deeper. judgmental, deeper beneath yeah. that, um, then it's a question of, of, of really, you know, how valuable are these people to you? If you feel insecure just being you, then what does that say about you and the environment that you keep? which is a way of saying, I'm not necessarily answering the question, but suggesting things for you to evaluate or think about. Um, I think personally that Qumran, you should feel super proud of the changes that you've made for yourself. Mm. Like you're basically making an investment in yourself. It's agreeing with you. You feel good about these decisions that you've made and you should feel comfortable expressing that without fear of reproach. So. I would do two things. I would look more deeply within yourself to examine that insecurity, if that's the case, that's motivating the introversion and try to figure out what is that about. And if it's your environment, then the good news is you can change your environment and start surrounding yourself with more like-minded people. So it kind of leaves him with two options. First, the choice to maintain your friendships and I think it's okay to care for people who see the world very differently and hopefully your friends can do the same in your direction. And again, if they're true friends, they should respect your, your values as you do theirs. Meanwhile, it's not incumbent upon you to change them or for them to change you. So it's about finding a way to gracefully coexist with these people that you care about. Um, the second thing is that I would encourage you to consider that perhaps this trepidation around your friends, and it's difficult to answer this question because I just don't know enough about this dynamic, but it's possible that this, this dynamic of fear lives larger in your mind than in reality. Mm. And the only analogy that I can share is that when I quit drinking, I thought like, oh my God, like everyone's gonna know I'm not drinking or I'm not gonna be able to hang out with my friends because if I'm not drinking and they are, they're not gonna like me or I'm not gonna be able to participate. And what I've discovered over time is that like people are self-absorbed, like they don't give a shit, right? Like no one cared. <laughs> and if somebody did care, then I knew like that person wasn't really my friend to begin with. At the same time, you can also seek out new friends who share your values with whom you feel comfortable being who you really are because you can't be a healthy actualized individual if you feel muted, whether that that sort of self-editing is emanating from within or from without. So what are you running from? What are you running towards? What are you, hi what are you hiding from your friends? And is that fear real or is that fear imagined? Hmm. Um, 
I think, you know, uh, the other thing that I'm getting, the sense I'm getting is that that there's a loneliness to all of this. You know, I, I tweeted one time, you can't break paradigms and expect to be embraced by the mainstream. The idea being like, if you're gonna do something that's kind of outside of, you know, what your social environment approves of or that is in alignment with what your peers are doing, that can be a difficult, lonely place. Mm. But it's also an opportunity for you to invest in your own values and to work on healthy boundaries around what's okay and what's not okay for yourself. And if you can do that, you will experience uh, a boost in, in self-esteem. So I think a lot of this does emanate from some esteem issues. So mm. maybe look at that as well. But if you can say, this is who I am and I'm gonna stand on my own two feet and, and you know, be that individual. It doesn't mean that you have a megaphone and you're trying to convince other people that to share your values, but just to be comfortable in your own skin is a very self-affirming, self-actualized, self-esteem building um, endeavor for yourself. He does call it the most fulfilling time of his life. So there may, maybe, right. maybe there's an aspect of it that is also very expansive. So it's like a contraction and an expansive expansion at the same time. Like he's feeling connected in ways that he hadn't before, maybe in the old but life. But in a way that makes him feel alienated from those friends. Like That's my right. sense is just that he's changed and yeah. his friends are in a different place and he's trying to figure out how to connect with those people and is not able to do that right now. Right. That's very good advice, sir. And so you're, he was asking if you experienced it, the only experience you can relate to I didn't really experience it with with changing my diet no. so much um, but I did experience it when I quit drinking yeah for sure do you and think a lot it, and see what you realize is so much of it is in your head do you think you it helped that being an athlete in college and just knowing people in that space like having a fitness and a nutrition regimen is normal right so it's like it wasn't like no but different. I mean I mean certainly I had to deal with a lot of like what you're not eating this and why are you eating that and you know I don't know I guess I I I had done and because uh, I had been sober for a long time, I had some tools yeah. for how to deal with all of that. So it wasn't as challenging or difficult, but being newly sober was very confusing and I, you know, and alienating and all of the stuff that he's sharing, I can relate to from that period of my life. Nice one. Well, thanks Kumaran, congrats on all the progress in your own life. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and congrats on the name. <laughs> all right, let's see. So we got Casey from Austin. Yeah. Hey, Rich and Adam. Uh, this is Casey. I'm in Austin, Texas. So I, I have friends that are always really intrigued by uh, the plant-based diet I, I eat, and they, they always want to know more, but they never commit. And I and I'm wondering, you know, what do you say to your friends that are interested in, in going plant-based? Um, really interested to hear your answer. And then another, kind of a follow-up on that is, the meat eating tends to have like this masculine tendency, like people feel masculine and it's kind of like one of those things that you attach to whenever you're like a, like a man, right? Uh, that's what I find with my friends, at least. I'm wondering, how do we, how do we make eating plant-based more masculine? I don't know if that makes sense, but uh, it's just something that I've been trying, that I've been struggling with in my head. Not that I don't feel that way, but more just to make my friends see it as like less of a, less of a weakness, if that makes sense. So anyways, Thanks for taking my call. Adam, great job on the four by four by 48. Actually hearing you that you were gonna do it um, kind of inspired me to do it and had a great experience as well. Um, have a good one, guys. Awesome. Yeah. Congrats, Casey, on the four by four by 48. That's cool. 
Congrats, Casey. Um, this is a great question. It's a pretty common one. I mm. mean, the first thing I would say, Casey, is just just get out of the business of being attached to whether your friends do or do not adopt a plant based diet. Like mm. it's just it's it's a it's a recipe for for frustration. So I try to, you know, kind of in a um, if you look at it through the lens of like codependency, like I just try to be not invested in what my friends or other people do or or don't do. And you can still be an advocate for the things that you believe in without getting caught up in the results of that activity. So I would just say that upfront. Second to that, the best way to kind of carry the message is to fan the flames of positive change and be the example that you want these guys to see. So if you wanna dispel the myth that eating a plant-based diet is somehow feminine is is feminine. If you want to be, you know, a masculine example, then then be that person and stand in the light and live your life accordingly. And I think that's more resonant and more impactful than anything that's going to come out of your mouth. If your friends are, it sounds like some of them are interested. They kind of dance around this. Just have them watch the Game Changers documentary. I mean, that that documentary does a pretty good job of diving into that very issue. Agreed. And most dudes find it to be pretty impactful if they don't just, you know, unless they, you know, there's a there's a sort of bro tendency to just switch switch off the, you know, and be like, I yeah. can't hear this. But yeah. if they are somewhat receptive, uh, that would be the first resource that I would direct those guys to. Again, just detach from your expectations. If if they don't commit it's not your business. So the idea is that it's about attraction rather than promotion, which is kind of a sobriety thing. You wanna be the lighthouse. I know I keep talking about this. I keep hammering on this point, but stand in the light and be a tractor beam, attract those like-minded people into your life rather than trying to um, compel other people to mm. see the world the, the way that you see it. And I think you also have to respect the fact that this masculine meat eater stereotype is just so crazy embedded in society. It's very difficult to untangle a knot that was wound decades ago in that person's life. Like our whole lives, we were told or hammered home the idea that eating meat is what it means to be a man. Yep. And you can't snap your fingers and have somebody suddenly, you know, not believe that anymore when they've been told that a bazillion times, or just society reinforces that constantly everywhere that you you turn. So, I get the dilemma, um, and I think, you know, on a personal level, it, it's one of the reasons that I've been <laughs> over-indexing on the gym and on strength work lately. <laughs> Uh, like I do, like yeah. I have this idea, like I'm not really racing right now. So why don't I get jacked? You know, why don't I get big and strong? I turned 55 in October and I can be uh, a vehicle for dispelling that very myth. And that's kind of what I've been yeah. focused on lately. That's one of, your, one of your goals, right? Yeah, I'm gonna play volleyball in the next Top Gun movie. That's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> Are you gonna be the Tom Skerritt no. of the next Top Gun movie? I might be that old by that time, you know, I don't know. Um, anyway, yeah, like be, be, be the example that you would like to see, I guess is the point that I'm trying to make. And, and, and understand that change is difficult. And in the best case, best cases, it's gradual and, and nonlinear. So if you have your friend, it, it, the good news is it seems like you have friends that are kind of interested in what you're doing. 
So that's cool. Like I said, fan the flames of positive change and yeah. and and put out the welcome mat, you know, and make yeah. them feel excited and energized by what this adventure might look like and couch it in the context of of um, you know including new things into your diet rather than like what you're not eating, like focus on like, hey, this amazing recipe, I've, you've never tasted anything so good and yeah. try to like blow their minds. You have to make it appealing. If you wanna appeal to the masculine mind, you gotta make this something that is compelling for that person to change their mind. And that's not an easy task. So in the meantime, live your life well, that's really the most powerful way to advocate. Mm. I think uh, it's great. Uh, the only thing I would add is, yeah, and I, I could totally understand where you're coming from. I'm sure in Texas, not to stereotype Texas or anything, but I, I'm sure that's even doubly so. You know, like the the call to the meat and yeah. like with with that. But also, it's Austin. Pull. Yeah, you know? right. I mean, like Austin's a pretty vegan friendly place. So but it's 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 vegan in a hippie way. But it's also the home of Rip Esselstyn, the 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 king himself, the founder of the whole. Like, he's the first plant based athlete that I'd ever heard of. Go. Like, he's the grandpappy. And so you, you know, you have an opportunity. You could throw a party. There's ways of doing it where mm -hmm. you could like just ca like cater your own event, right? Where people are like trying it for the first time. Um, but I think what you're saying is perfect. Just be the lighthouse. Be who you are. I also think this idea of like the masculine stuff that like this that's not for you to worry about like you know like it's interesting the next question kind of plays in this we have friends and then we're going into talking about masculinity which is something i never talk about really i never even think about but um it is interesting the concepts of masculinity what that means to young guys um i think it's okay to separate from that and not even deal with that it's like not but, on the, your but the, the problem there and why this is so core to the whole thing is that it's what makes it it's the difference between habit change, like I'm gonna break this habit or I'm gonna adopt a new habit and identity change. Mm. Like identity, like this speaks to the core of who I am. Like I'm a man and a man behaves in, in, in this manner. I do X, Y, and Z. And now you're telling me I can't do this thing. That's a threat to how I see myself. And so you've got to rewire that whole programming. So it's much more difficult than just saying, hey, maybe don't eat that thing because it's not good for you. Right. Well, I think Game Changers will is the perfect place to go. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, if you're an NBA fan, Chris Paul, uh, low key went plant based, didn't make a big deal about it, and his whole you know, like he became injury free and dominated mm -hmm. all of last year, and and um, was one of the best players in the league again last year and this year again. So um, it works. Yeah, and that's why the athletes are so important in this conversation because. You know, for a lot of people, particularly dudes, it's that's what they pay attention to. They mm -hmm. just want to see those results, and so you need those guys out there crushing it. And there's lots of them. Lots of them. And the funny thing about Chris Paul was he didn't want to talk about it, not because he was ashamed of it, because he didn't want other people <laughs> to do it. Right. <laughs> he was keeping his competitive, competitive advantage. Edge. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. All right, we got right. one more question. One more. Hey, fellas, my name is Cindy from New Hampshire. You can play this on the show. I think you two make a great team and you're great models of male vulnerability and connection. And I think a lot of listeners would benefit from hearing you two riff on masculinity and particularly how you navigated your own boyhood and early manhood. And I know Rick just shared a lot of that in his book and on his show, but the two of you could inspire guys to dig into like masculinity expectations, feeling man enough, the idea of suffer till worthy, and just the whole process of unhooking from all that throughout your life. Because even before COVID, many boys, young men, older men, 
they've been struggling emotionally and are not comfortable seeking the help they need before they before they crack. So I think men are desperate to know they're not alone, and I think you guys could inspire some serious healing. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Cindy just going to the heart of the whole thing. That men need help? <laughs> right. <laughs> men need a lot of help. Um, it's a masculinity twofer. It's a masculinity yeah. crisis, folks. Back-to-back masculinity is, questions. Is the problem too much masculinity? <laughs> Well, yes. I mean, there's, there's, this is, this doesn't even have anything to do necessarily with, well, with toxic masculinity being at the far end of that spectrum. No, no, no. But, we're not talking about that. Yeah, we're not talking about that. But what we are talking about is, it, it, again, it goes back to identity, and it seemed that you know Cindy was interested in, in, in kind of hearing a little bit about how I, you, we navigated our own boyhood and early manhood. I mean, I'm somebody who never thought of myself as particularly masculine, um, but I did spend most of my boyhood and early adult life trying to find my own way into masculinity by adhering to social norms like swimming, academia, law. And the more that I tried to do that or double down on that, it didn't work because it was at, um, you know, at, it was it was turning a blind eye to a little self exploration to figuring out you know my own identity rather than trying to make myself fit into some paradigm. Hmm. Um, you know, I was a quiet kid, introverted, outside of the norm. I went to a very masculine, hyper male high school, and I could never really identify with what a lot of the other boys cared about, like football and. And I think at that time, looking back in retrospect, that led me to really question my own inherent manhood or relationship to masculinity. And I think that in turn led to insecurity and feelings of, of, of less than, that something was wrong with me. And that in turn led me to withdraw even more and feel ashamed. And then of course, enter alcohol, right? <laughs> Which almost killed me. Mm. So this is how serious these things can can become. Um, and it was only when I was so broken that I had no other choice but to embrace vulnerability, um, no other choice than to surrender to the truth of myself that I was able to summon the courage to, to not only ask for help, but to receive help, which I think is harder than even, you know, for a lot of people, much harder than just asking for it. And in turn, be be able to heal and accept myself and and mend my insecurities, and then access and grow into a more authentic incarnation of myself. But I think for most men, this process is essentially anathema. It's counterintuitive path that is just off the table. Um, rather than remain stuck in pain. Um, I think many people are. What am I trying to say? I think there are a lot of people who would rather remain stuck in pain than appear weak mm. um, because showing your truth is a very terrifying prospect, um, I think particularly for, for a lot of men. And so you know, over the years, I've worked hard to dispel this myth that vulnerability is weakness, that showing emotion is weakness, and that by leading with vulnerability and emotion, um, it's like this disarming force that allows and, and, and permits others to kind of meet me in that space. And I think it's also correct that most men, young boys, adolescents suffer in silence. Their emotions are on lockdown. They're afraid of being open and honest with anybody. 
And over time, if not unlocked, like this is gonna fester, it's gonna metastasize and the result is, is never good. And that's when we get into toxic masculinity and, and, and violence. Mm. So it's about normalizing the process of asking and receiving help. It's about normalizing vulnerability and understanding that, that vulnerability and, and being kind of more on the surface with your emotions is not mutually exclusive from masculinity. You can love football, you can love MMA and cars and guns or whatever we associate with conventional norms that surround our definition of what is and what isn't masculine and be open, honest, vulnerable, caring, all of those things. Mm. And inquisitive and all, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that, you know, you demonstrate that. I think that's part of the appeal to David Goggins, a major part of it, and Joe Rogan as well, kind of like this masculine version of being open, inquisitive, and vulnerable about life, basically. And, and I think the I think the 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 podcast um, host that exemplifies it perhaps better than anybody is is Dak Shepard because he's he's very much like a dude's dude. He likes yeah. to race cars and like, you know. Yeah. He wears like cut off shirts and he's a blue collar guy from Michigan and like chews tobacco and like, you know, like he's a dude's dude, yeah. but he's also somebody who wears his emotions on his sleeve and he's very vulnerable and he tells his friends he loves them and he does all this yes. stuff that is sort of counter to what you think like a dude's dude would do. And I think it's part of why his message is so powerful and impactful and why I think he's such a good podcast host. Mm. Um, but it's it's that like, combination like you know i'm i'm not a dude's dude in the way that right. that dax is but i still would characterize myself as having a certain kind of masculinity that through a lot of internal work is not under threat because i tell you adam i love you right. you know what i mean thank you i love you too yes we'll make out afterwards <laughs> i agree um i mean my story i'm going to drop a little bomb here but we don't have to belabor it too much but um I grew up, I was sexually abused at seven years old. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and uh, and then grew up and went through puberty late and was really small for my age most of my life. Even though I was interested in sports and was pretty good, um, I had to question myself along the way. And I kind of like stuffed down the abuse for a long time, I didn't tell anybody. Um, and then I didn't really come up and address it until what was it two th like 99 2000 i think right around there so i would be 28 mm. around then is when i first started to deal with it and uh at first it was hard guru singh helped me through it at the beginning and um i went through a process of therapy through him but not through traditional means like going to a psychotherapist i went to a yoga teacher right. who happens wow. to be like a great therapist also mm -hmm. but he's not traditional um and at the same time, kind of like what's helped me isn't been attaching to, I've never felt like I needed to be some macho dude. That's never been my thing because I never was because I was always kind of smaller and felt smaller even when I grew. And so I just never felt the need to do it. I, I never never wanted to be in that, in that mode um, and was never attracted to it. But at the same time, like, you know, I'll bro out just like anybody else. So I understand that, like, having a group of guy friends can be empowering to young guys and having some people you're close to can be. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
that was never a problem for me either. So I've kind of was riding this line of having this secret and, and broing out and never really addressing it. And then in my later, like what's helped me most of all has been kind of discovering things like yoga, which is kind of a more feminine practice and, and Taoism, which is a book. I, I, I read the Tao Te Ching from cover to cover. Basically I read mm -hmm. a verse, you know, maybe multiple days in a row, then I'll start again at the beginning and I'll, I'll switch translations. And that is again, kind of looking at the universe in a, in, in a, not in duality, but in oneness. And so I don't think of, I think my advice would be, or things I like to tell people is, let's not try to look at things in duality. Let's look at things as, as unity, that we're a part of everything all the time. Um, and I'm not one of those people that's like against gender constructs in any way, shape or form. I just think it's beyond gender. It's a conversation beyond gender. It's a connection beyond the individual. It's, it's an expansion that we are everything all the time. And when you think of it that way, the deconcentration of the small thing and get bigger, you know, I feel like sometimes I feel like the luckiest man in the world. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, wow, thank you for sharing that story. I didn't, I didn't know that about you. Yeah, thanks. Um, that's pretty heavy. We can talk more about that. We can unpack that. After. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we will definitely unpack a little bit more of that. Um, I think that I agree with you on all of that, but I also think that that's some of what you're talking about is a bit esoteric, like in the context of like a young male who's struggling with his relationship to masculinity yeah. and, and his peer group, the only way to, um, to motivate that young individual to engage with his interior emotional life um, in a healthy way, given if he, if, you know, if he's one of these people that seems shut down in that regard, is to model healthy behavior mm -hmm. in that guy's environment. So, putting a, a strong male in proximity to that person who is an example of you know how to kind of do this in a healthy way, I think is the is really the lever. That moves the needle. So whether it's somebody in the community, or a relative, or a coach, or a teacher, or somebody on YouTube, or a podcast host, or something like that, that that young person can connect with and start to think a little bit differently about um, how he's relating to himself and and his direct environment. I think is a really powerful thing. Yeah, I, mean, I think and that would be the advice that I would give. Having mentors is key, and then and then also holding yourself accountable and working on yourself. And you know, if you say you're going to do something, go do it. Like these kinds of things can make you feel. I mean, it's probably just about growing up in general. But as a young man, it can make you feel more of a man if you know you can rely on yourself to do what you say you're going to do. Mm -hmm. You can feel more empowered as a man. Right, but the trick is. You can do that and still be repressing all of your emotions. That's true. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's about having a healthy relationship with those emotions. Like what is the outlet for that so that later on in life it doesn't manifest in a toxic manner? What would you say a good outlet would be finding therapy or doing Well, I mean it depends on the individual, but that's why I think just having having healthy males that that model healthy behavior in the orbit of that young person will be the most powerful because it'll demonstrate to that person like, hey, it's okay for me to like talk about my feelings or yeah. it's safe. You know, I'm not gonna get chastised or ridiculed because I have this weird emotion and I'm afraid to share it with anybody. Mm. Good points. You model healthy behavior so, ritual. Not all the time. <laughs>
I lose my shit every once in a while. You do? Trust me, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, we've been going for like two and a half hours, so we're I gonna know. wrap this thing up. Thank you for sticking around if people are listening still. Right, yeah. thanks for listening to <laughs> the us. The whole journey today. And if you didn't listen to the last bit, just forget I mentioned it. Yeah, do you feel like you just had a catharsis? Yeah, I feel like I feel like you're my Oprah. I don't know about that. That makes that makes me nervous. <laughs> you did disclose something pretty heavy there, though. I did, but uh, it's okay. I've just I, I once wrote a novel where it was part of it, and so mm. I was prepared to disclose it then. But of course, nobody bought it, so I could have taken it back. Well, you did it in a way that felt very comfortable to you. Yeah. So clearly, you've done enough work around it that it's not like causing you distress. No, thank you. So appreciate good it for you, man. Thanks. Cool. Well, until next time, we'll be back in two weeks. Uh, follow Adam at Adam Skolnick. I'm of course at Rich Roll. If you want your question considered for the show, leave us a message at 424-235-4626. Check out the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. We'll have links up to everything we talked about today. Again, hit that subscribe button on YouTube, Apple, Spotify. Uh, we recently created a clips channel on YouTube. We gotta start uploading more clips there. We're behind, but we got big plans for that channel. You can find it by searching Rich Roll Podcast Clips on YouTube, or uh, we'll link it up in the show notes as well. Smash that button. Smash it. Um, I wanna thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiolo for production, audio engineering, show notes, interstitial music, all the good stuff. Blake Curtis for videoing today's show. Jessica Miranda for graphics. David Greenberg for taking portraits. Georgia Whaley for copywriting, DK for advertiser relationships and theme music dating back to episode one. My Ooh. boys, Tyler, Trapper, and Harry. Fantastic. Tyler and Trapper are in the studio recording their first album fucking finally. That's amazing. Yeah, oh, it's pretty wow. exciting. That is exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's really cool. Um, appreciate you guys. Love you, see you back here uh, in a couple of days with another awesome episode. And Adam and I will be back of course in two weeks. So yep. until then, peace, plants. Namaste. Yeah.